friends, it is great to be back here hosting Wasn't That Special, 50 years of Saturday Night Live. I'm Scott Bertram, and I have to say up front, I am just pleased as punch that my co-host Christian Schneider hasn't hired a whole bunch of high-priced talent to replace us for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Not this time. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, We are... Entering season 10 of SNL here and talking about the uh, the all-star here, the Yankees, uh, the Yankees here, as it's uh, called in some circles. And uh, we've got tons of hot takes, so be sure to stick around. Tell you right up front, if you're joining us for the first time or perhaps sampling us for a multiple time, well, it's time to join us, don't you think? Wasn't that special.com as we walk through all 50 seasons of Saturday Night Live, watching each episode for you. And then summarizing in, well, two to two and a half hour form here on the program. Wasn't that special.com? You can join us on a monthly basis for access to everything. Save a little bit of coin by joining us on an annual basis or be really cool and join us at the executive producer level. Uh, That means you get special privileges with us, your hosts at Wasn't That Special. And Christian, he is working for you. He is doing things for your benefit that you get if you are an executive producer level supporter. Eh, I'm working my turkey self here. Eh. I'm going I'm to do the whole podcast in an old 80-year-old Jewish man voice. Lou Goldman, that's, the co-host of yes, today's podcast. Since, that is, yes, since that is the entire season 10 is cast members doing old Jewish men. So I uh, figured you might want to get a little bit more of that on the podcast. If you are executive producer level, you get access to Christian's work, which includes the clips of uh, sketches that we discuss, also some contemporaneous reviews and essays about SNL from the season that we are discussing. Also, all these notes we take, we have spreadsheets. I actually thought yesterday, Christian, might we maximize the ability of Google spreadsheets to keep all of our notes because we have 50 tabs open and we use, I don't even know what this, what we use, like 600 rows on each tab. I don't know. We're, there's a lot of information there. It can't all make it onto the podcast. And so Christian compiles and curates and then sends out our best comments on things that didn't make the show to you. If you are an executive producer, you can tell us what you want us to talk about on each program. We ask you before we uh, we step in to record and voting privileges at the end of our 50 seasons of review as we, your two co-hosts, and our executive producers vote on the best cast, the best cast members, all-time best sketches, things like that. It's going to be fun and definitive, and you want to be along for the ride. Wasn't that special.com. Join us there, and also follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at 50 years of SNL. Five zero years of SNL. We're also on Facebook, too. Not a lot of traction over at Facebook. You want to be our Facebook pal? Do it over there. <laughs> but wasn't that special.com. That's the key place to go to join us here on this journey through all 50 seasons of SNL. Season 10 tonight. And um, this is a season that is well known. Uh, it's an odd season. It's a weird season, but it is a well-remembered season by many. And I had not seen vast swaths of material from this season because Lord Michaels has chosen (laughs) in many ways not to highlight the Dick Ebersole seasons. This is his last. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, where do we start on this season 10 episode of Wasn't That Special? So as as I was watching the season, I was thinking quite a bit about my 
universal theory of all things SNL. Um, I was getting, getting, getting very reflective as I was watching this. And it seems to me that there are really two SNLs. There is the SNL as it actually ran. And then there is the SNL that we remember. And it seems these days the only SNL that really matters is the SNL that we remember. Uh, and that's problematic because a lot of our memories are really kind of malleable and we forget a lot of things and we remember things that never happened and all that stuff. And I think uh, actually that's why why we do this podcast. This is what we're trying to correct, um, kind of bridge the gap between what we remember and what, what actually happened. Um, but what happens is people write about the show based on their memories and then younger writers come come along and then they they write about the show based on the memories uh, that those other people have. And so it's almost like a Xerox of a Xerox where it gets further and further away from what the show actually was. Um, I'm sure there's like some Malcolm Gladwell book about that that explains all that <laughs> but anyway. But uh, um, so what is it exactly that distorts our memories of SNL? And in watching the season, it came to me that I think it's all recurring characters. It all comes down to recurring characters um, because we see them over and over and they're burned in our brain and they're the things that we remember. And I think what people do is they start to judge both cast members and seasons based on the number of recurring characters that, that they actually have. So when you think of Eddie Murphy, you don't think of, you know, kind of his one-off bits. You think of you know, Velvet Jones, or you think of uh, Buckwheat or any of these other characters. When you think of John Belushi, you think, you know, Samurai and uh, Cheeseburger, Cheeseburger, or Gilda Radner, it's uh, Emily Latella or uh, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana. So it's, it's recurring characters that really stick in people's minds. And I think that happens with seasons too, because you sent me a list of people who have rated the best seasons in all of SNL. There's various lists out there by, you know, people of various regard who, yes, will say, trying to do what we we are doing, but I think we're doing a better job, of course. But yeah, ranking each season, which was the best, which was the worst. Right. And so there's this, there's this young journalist who puts season seven as one of the greatest seasons of all time. <laughs> uh, because he goes, he goes through the list. He goes, well, it has Velvet Jones. It has Gumby. It has Mr. Robinson. And, you know, all these huge recurring characters. And of course, to people who haven't actually watched the show, that means quality, right? But no sane person would put, or no person that's actually watched the show would put season seven before season eight, right? right. Season eight is actually is actually a good season. Season seven really struggles aside aside from the Eddie stuff. So I've got season um, seven in the in the ongoing rankings as the third worst season thus far. So just ahead of nine and six, right? So what happens is we remember the show's quality almost entirely through recurring characters, which brings us to season 10, which is completely steeped in recurring characters. I mean, you've got Fernando, you've got Ed Grimley, you've got Frankie and Willie and on and on and on. And I think that is why this season is ranked so highly uh, among, you know, the people that, that do their rankings, uh, just because there are so many recurring characters and it causes a lot of trouble during the show, as we'll find out uh, later, but it's just because they, they repeated so many characters and it sticks in people's minds and that's what they remember. So I think it completely distorts our memory of season 10, uh, which as we were going to find out 
isn't that great of a season. Um, I've seen, you know, it ranked as high as like the number four season of all time because of who we're going to talk about, the new cast members and all that stuff. But I, I just think our memory of this season is entirely distorted because of recurring characters. And there are other there are other reasons, you know, people look back and kind of distort old seasons. It could be, you know, they say, well, it really put SNL back on the map after a slow period. Okay, fine. Or they say they just look back at the care the the cast members and kind of what they did after SNL, and then they say, well, that had to had to have been a great cast because look at what what they did afterwards. But I think for the most ninety percent of it, I think is do I remember this character hmm. uh, from the show? And uh, so that's that's my unifying theory. When you see a list, that's what the person who wrote the list is probably <laughs> thinking about. Except us here, we're- except us. That's what we're trying to break. Yeah. Two quick thoughts on that. And then we can slide deeper into season 10 and it's uh, it's actual quality. I think that you, you had sold that unifying theory to me as being a very big deal. And we'll see. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm holding uh, my, my evaluation for a while. But I will say I think that Lorne Michaels probably would agree because it's a very Lorne thing now. And I don't know exactly when it started, right, to stress characters. And we've heard and seen and read many accounts from people who have tried out for SNL. And what do they all come back saying? They say, well, they, they said, what characters do you have? What characters do you do? And people who are characterless sometimes feel very inadequate when they're trying out for SNL because the request is, what, what characters do you do? What, what can you bring? The other thing I'll say, and this is only because I'm already knee deep into season 11 after Lorne returns, <laughs> is I think he may have, he might have taken that lesson from season 10 because season 11, uh, spoiler alert, boy, Lauren loves his recurring characters and recurring (laughs) sketches in season 11. And they did, I mean, look, you go back to three and four, as we've talked about, and and there's that stretch where you've got the Festrunk brothers every other time and Roseanne, Rosanna Dana is there, you know, 12 times a season, Mr. Bill, right? There's no doubt, but I think he might have seen the way that some of these characters resonated and remained in the conscience of viewers and took that lesson into season 11. But that's all I'll say about that for now, because that's a story for a different day. Today's story is on season 10, 1984-1985. Dick Abersall is still in charge. We'll come to him in a moment, but we start each show by telling you who's in, who's out, setting the cast, and also setting the writers for this season 10. And there are many changes as we begin season 10 in the cast, Christian. Indeed. Uh, We have newly minted uh, cast members, uh, Martin Short, who comes to the show via uh, SCTV. He was on uh, the Canadian show for for a couple of years. Uh, Harry Shearer is back. You may remember him as kind of a pseudo replacement for Belushi and Aykroyd in season five, uh, where people got sick of him and <laughs> didn't want to work with him anymore. And he thought he was better than the material that uh, that he was being given. So they give him another shot because he and another cast member, Christopher Guest, who you may remember as a member of the National Lampoon's Lemmings show from the early 1970s, he was actually a, uh, a college friend of Chevy Chase's, very musically inclined, which is why he was the first uh, person brought on to the Lemmings show. 
But uh, he is now a cast member as well as Rich Hall, who came from the show Not Necessarily the News, which is a show that I actually uh, remember. And he had his own cool little bit on that show uh, called Sniglets, which he created this category of words that should exist but don't. So on Not Necessarily the News, he would have people uh, mail in new word ideas. And one of them was like, when you have butter and the little bits of toast that get stuck in the butter, those are called toasticles. That's the only one I remember from age 12. <laughs> but So yeah, so Rich Hall is, is uh, here, and so is Pamela Stevenson, who comes from... Great Britain. She was on not the nine o'clock news, which is a uh, which is a show there. Although she originally hails from New Zealand, and, and then she was in Australia for a little while. So she was uh, she was a world traveler and finally made her way over to the U.S. and uh, was picked over. Should we do this now? She was picked over Andrea Martin of SCTV. Uh, she was picked over. Uh, Kathy and Jimmy, who would go on to uh, to fame in, in movies and other places. And she was picked over Jan Hooks, who would uh, eventually uh, become a, an SNL member, as and, we all know. And so, one, one other name, picked over Gina Davis. Oh, I had not heard that, but yes. yeah, wow. Martin Gina Davis is like in Mensa, right? Isn't she like a super genius? I believe she is. I believe she yeah. is, yes. Okay, and so... So those are the new cast members. And so that means some are gone. Uh, Eddie Murphy, gone. He was halfway gone. He had a foot out the door last season. Joe Piscopo, gone. Robin Duke, sadly, gone. As is... Uh, I don't know Tim how you're Kes- doing the show tonight, quite frankly. <laughs> As is Tim Kazarinski. Uh, and so that, and there's still a couple of holdovers from the previous season. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, uh, JLD. Gary Kroger. Still around, Mary Gross, and Jim Belushi still there. So, I mean, you would think that these people are in their, what, third year on the show now? With all these this new talent coming in, you would think these people that have been on the show forever would have their finally have their chance to shine on the show, would you not, Scott? You would. You'd be <laughs> wrong, but you would think that, wouldn't you? Um, I want to talk a bit about how we got to this point with this cast change. But before we do, we have a few of the cast members discussing uh, the tone, the feel, how this cast came together. Let, let's start with Martin Short. Martin Short coming in from SCTV. He was the very last cast member to stand or to uh, to sign up, apparently. And he joined Howard Stern on Sirius XM to talk about the process of getting SNL and how Martin Short became a member of this cast. Do you know, I was very hesitant. Uh, Dick Ebersol phoned me and said, do you want to do Saturday Night Live? And, and I kind of thought, I, 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 and, and he said, you know, here's who we're trying to get. We're trying to get Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer, who had Spinal Tap out that summer, right. which was just Huge. the yeah. most genius, and also genius. so genius. Yes. And Billy Crystal and I kind of said, well, you know, Call me back when you get them. Right. <laughs> you know? In other words, you would not go do this unless they had that stellar no, 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 cast. No, 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 And then he phoned me up and said, uh, we got him. And so I was, when they had a little press conference in L.A. to announce the new cast, I was the surprise last person. Okay, but why was Martin Short even considered for this cast? This was not a show, Christian, that would go back and try to cast uh, stars. They made stars, by and large. And yet this season you have 
By the way, did you mention Billy Crystal in running down the cast members? Did I miss that? I think you I did might not have, mention. Okay. I think you might have forgotten a guy named Billy Crystal. He's yeah, how can I forget Billy Crystal? My apologies to Billy Crystal and his family. Billy Crystal's yeah. here. Harry Shearer, Chris Guest, <laughs> Norton Short. These are big names. These are established. <laughs> these are established comic actors. So how did we get here? A quick backstory. Season nine is coming to a close. We already know Eddie Murphy is gone and has left the show. And what happens next? There's always a little, will Dick Ebersole come back? Will he not? Because he is now developing other shows with those chips he got from NBC for taking over SNL and getting it renewed a couple of years. So he's got Friday night videos and uh, he's soon to have a wrestling show, Saturday night's main event. And he's, he's busy. He's a busy guy. And would he come back for this season 10? He's talking about not returning by the middle of season nine. And maybe he won't come back. He, he wants to be with his family. He, uh, he explained, we don't have this cut. He, he explained that he and his wife, Susan St. James, whom he met on SNL, had a pact that one of them would be a stay-at-home parent, essentially, right? One of them would work, one of them would not. And Susan St. James was getting to be a fairly big on-screen star by this point. And so the discussion was whether Dick Ebersole would be the one to stay home. Well, he and, and Bob Tischler talk, and, and Tischler had been his right-hand man as a producer on the show for a couple of seasons by this point. Tischler said, look, Dick, that's fine. Do it. Do that. You be, the, you be a true executive producer, and you can spend more time at home. I'll take over the day-to-day -day stuff here in New York. You be executive producer. You keep your name on the show, and that's how we're going to do season 10. And Dick Ebersole said, yeah, no, 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 I, I don't think so. And he stays on the show. He stays in the executive producer spot. But they do have an arrangement in which they agree very early on that season 10 is going to have far more pre-taped segments, non-live segments. And Tischler would be in charge of producing those segments. So in a way, he does take over a larger portion of, of content production, but Dick keeps his fingerprints all over the main Saturday night show. Both of them knew the cast needed to be changed, needed to be overhauled. But Tischler, if you talk to him, would say he's really the one who pushed to revamp the cast in this manner. They talked about it. I'm sure Ebersole had some thoughts about bringing in people who were not raw, who were established names. And Tischler was certainly on board with that. And that's why we end up with Crystal Shearer guest Martin Short, who's gone. As you mentioned, Piscopo was gone. Uh, depending who you talk to, he left or they fired him. <laughs> he was tired of SNL. <laughs> SNL was tired of him. Tim kazarinski has gone. Uh, he said uh, in, the, in the Shales book, they told him, you, you, you rely on too many, too many of the same characters. And Tim says, well, but you ask me to play the same characters every week. <laughs> and then Duke and Hall are gone as well, uh, as you mentioned previously. But we get to this point in which Bob Tischler takes over these pre-produced, pre-recorded sketches that make up large portions, I shouldn't say large, significant portions of some of the shows, particularly early on in the season. And so that's why this this season does have a different sort of feel to it. Um, Billy Crystal, talking with the Television Academy, told them about sort of the feel of this new cast coming together, a cast that had experience, a cast that had previous success, and how this SNL, he felt, differed from previous SNL casts. Marty came, Chris came, Harry came. And I think, you know, we really 
energized the show in a different way. We were veteran performers, all of us, very skilled. Left from the previous cast was Julia, Louis Dreyfus, and um, Mary Gross, Rich Hall, really funny, Jim Belushi, and uh, Pamela Stevenson was also added to the cast, English comedian. And we, we had different sensibilities about us. The only drugs we did was Maalox. And we, um, where's my drummer? <laughs> and, and so our sensibilities were different. Our film pieces were different. But what broke loose um, was Fernando. And so we'll see how they come together and how they work together and if it is a success. But they themselves even felt they were doing somewhat of a different show than the one that had come before them. So it's kind of surprising to me that Harry Shearer, who we discussed uh, at length uh, a few seasons ago, five seasons ago, would actually come back to the show given his really terrible experience that he had um, and the relations that he had with with some of the other cast members. But he did, uh, and he came back with uh, with his castmate, uh, his movie mate, Christopher Guest, who by all accounts is actually not as prickly, but similarly prickly. But uh, <laughs> no, so, no one I, is I think as have... prickly as <laughs> Harry Shearer, allegedly. Harry, Don't know the guy. Yeah, Harry Shearer, uh, according to the books, really laid into Billy Crystal quite a bit. Um, just didn't respect his talent, did not think that uh, he should be doing uh, characters, the same repeat characters over and over, just thought his, you know, his comedy was edgier and... Look, Dick Ebersol wanted, you know, he wanted the show to be Taylor Swift. Like, he wanted it to be everything to everybody, you know, a huge hit, only bangers. Uh, Harry Shearer wanted it to be like, you know, Boy Genius or something, you know, something a little more esoteric, something um, that has that has more of a, a cult following type of thing. And it, it ultimately didn't work out. But I think we have a clip of Harry Shearer discussing why he came back to the show and a little bit of his experience the second time. The second time that I was there, I was, they, they said, we want you for your political stuff. And there were three weeks, probably not consecutive, where I was in Ronald Reagan makeup uh, at Showtime and they killed the sketch halfway through the show. So no, I felt very out of place there. It was like, what's going on now, uh, in my opinion, should have been what was happening all along, except it should have been it should be and should have been funnier. And this second time would not last all that long. More on that momentarily. Uh, before we get into the meat of the season, Christian, very quickly on, on the writer's room. This is a season. Uh, well, let me run down the writers. Jim Belushi gets writer's credit in addition to his performing credit. Eddie Bruckman's back. Billy Crystal writes. Guy named Larry David writes. More on that in a second. Jim Downey is back for occasional episodes, not the entire season. Chris Guest, Rich Hall get writing credits. Uh, Nate Hermit is back. He was with the show a couple of years ago. Kevin Kelton, Andy Kurtzman, Margaret Oberman, Rob Riley, Herb Sargent from the original uh, five years. Martin Short, Harry Shearer get writing credits, as does Bob Tischler. He's the head writer on the show. And then Andrew Smith and Elliot Wald. That's the writer's room. But I must say, this season, more than essentially any other season ever, Christian, I would argue the writer's room is unimportant or at least has the least amount of importance as any season in SNL's history because it is so character-driven. 
It is so driven by what these guys develop by themselves. Martin Short's characters, Billy Crystal's characters, the things that Rich Hall does himself. These are, these are actors in comics who create their own worlds and then live inside them. So like Breckman, Andy Breckman, who we praised in a previous episode, I don't know if I recall writing down one, a single sketch this season where you say, oh, Breckman clearly wrote that one. It has his tone, it has his feel, because it is so dominated by these comics and actors who do their own writing. And I think that is in large part a, uh, a Dick Ebersol edict. He would go to Billy Crystal and say, Billy, we need a, we need a, a Fernando and Billy would say, uh, okay, I'll see what I can do. Or he'd go to Martin Short. We need a Grimley this, this episode. Like, okay, I'll, I'll draft up a Grimley for you. Um, and so that's, that's how these characters came to be. And yeah, once they're basically just, you know, these characters are, you'll wind them up and let them go. You know, you put them in a situation, something like that. But they're not really premise heavy. They're not really uh, plot heavy. Uh, or joke heavy. They're basically just kind of, you know, character pieces. Yeah. Larry David in the writer's room. And don't expect to say, oh, Larry David, he's hilarious. How good is his stuff this year? Because he has no <laughs> stuff this year. He's there all season. And as far as I can tell through the writings, there are exactly two pieces that get on air that Larry David had a hand in writing. And one is a, a, a 10 to midnight sketch in which there's a blueprint for I can't remember what it is, and 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 Larry David has has put a stool in the elevator for the elevator operator, and then they argue <laughs> about whether there should be a stool for the elevator operator, even if he's only using it when there is no one in the elevator. You might recall this as a plot point in a future Seinfeld episode, uh, but with the security guard at the at the store. So there was a sketch like that, and then he also helped write, helped create the the Lou Goldman stuff that Billy Crystal does on Saturday Night News, which is, sit down for this, an old Jewish guy uh, who's <laughs> complaining about things as he does the weather uh, on Saturday Night News. And that's it for Larry David. But he did meet Julia Louis-Dreyfus, so the season is not all for naught. Uh, well, aside from that, you're right. He, he met Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and a number of his sketches that were rejected actually ended up as Seinfeld sketches or Seinfeld episodes. Uh, there's, uh, he wrote a sketch where Julia Louis-Dreyfus goes to a, a, a funeral and starts asking around whether, uh, you know, the person who, the deceased, uh, has an apartment, uh, available. I believe that ended up in, in a Seinfeld. Uh, there's, he wrote a sketch where a guy leaves a, a, a message on a, his girlfriend's answering machine, but then regrets it. And so he breaks into her apartment right. to retrieve the answering machine message and then, yeah, the the security guard sitting on the stool one. So he wrote a bunch of stuff that we would see a lot later. And uh, so it all was not for naught. And he, we didn't mention this before. You may remember a couple of seasons ago, there was a show called uh, Fridays that was on ABC that was essentially an SNL competitor. He was actually a cast member on that show. And I've gone back and I've tried, I've watched some of the stuff. And he was actually a pretty pretty decent cast member. Some of his stuff was the best the best stuff on that show. So uh, they should have taken his advice, but he clashed immediately with Dick Ebersol, And he thought that Ebersol was out to get him from the get-go. And so I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but they did not see eye to eye uh, from the get-go. And he just thought, 
uh, there's just no way I'm going to get anything on. He, he he thought he had Ebersol had a had a um, was vindictive and had it out for him. So, <laughs> all right, let's get into season ten a little deeper. It begins with a show with no host whatsoever, and there's actually a a, a part. Who was it? It was Shearer. In fact, I, I didn't grab this piece of audio, but Shearer says the cast convinced Ebersol not to have a host for the first episode. I said we're good enough. You know, we're, we're, we've got names, we're established. You don't even need a host for this first episode. So they didn't have one. And Crystal came out and did the monologue early on, but there was no host for the first episode. That would be the only time this season there was no host. But I think when we when, when we think back on, on this season, Christian, the one thing, yes, is the superstar cast and these characters they develop. But the other is the reliance that we saw emerge at the end of season nine and fully bloom in season 10, planned this way, on taped, pre-taped, recorded sketches, which do a couple of things. They, they really hoist up the front part of the season. Some of the most classic taped pieces are early on of the year. I think they generally inflate memories of what season 10 was all about. Overall, people remember some of these really sharp taped pieces, but not the actual live things from the show. And there's far more live stuff at the end of the year that does not work very well. And it's even the first segment, the first sketch, the first cold open of the year, Christian, is a filmed taped bit. This is a uh, an intentional move this year in season 10. Right. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these movies, they filmed during the summer before the show even started. So they had a bunch of this stuff in the can already. So they start off the season with lifestyles of the relatives of the rich and famous, which uh, is a sketch I really enjoy. And uh, it starts out off with Martin Short uh, as like the third nephew of Catherine Hepburn. You know, I enjoy a good cold open, but I thought this was a a good way to start the season. I think we'll be talking about that one a little bit later. But... uh, in his book, Martin Short says, look, I, I started out episode one of season 10 with lifestyles of the relatives of the rich and famous. Then right after uh, the monologue, I get Ed Grimley and then the synchronized swimmer sketch. We're not even a half hour into the first show and I'm three for three on bangers. And I think he thought that that was like, I mean, there, there just could be nothing better than that. He, he went... <laughs> You know, everybody told him, this is incredible what you've done. And uh, I don't think we've seen a debut like that on the show. These sketched, uh, sketched, these taped sketches, you know, among them, the the synchronized swimmers. Now that's episode one. Uh, The chess coach is early in the season. Uh, Black Like Eddie is one that we'll talk about later. That is a, a taped piece. There are a lot of these, particularly early on in the season. And then you match this up with uh, these characters that they develop and, and roll out. I think we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes, sort of this, this long list of characters that they begin developing. And so the beginning of the season, you do have these pieces that are that are labored over, right? They're, they're taped, they're, they're filmed, and they just do have a different feel to them. It's, you know, it's this, it's this constant... It's the agreement they made before the season. It's essentially, why do we insist that the show be live? And why can't we do things that we have spent hours finessing and finalizing into a, a perfect product? Why can't we do that? They did it here. 
and they don't really do it again, at least not to this extent. And I think it is because the magic part of it is that we talked about this in the first time we ever talked together about SNL. Part of the magic is the live aspect that anything can happen, that there's a sense of danger, that it might be fabulous and it might stink. You don't know until they go live with it and and that it's (laughs) gone. Um, and, and, And the thing about these tape pieces is that they live for a long time because they do replay so well because they are uh, they are they are produced, they are taken back into the woodshed, they are redone, multiple takes, right? And that's why some of them have lived so long, I think, because they are really so well produced. Uh, they want to take anything away from their quality, but they do make the season, and again, particularly early on, just feel very different than a typical SNL year. Yeah, I think uh, Shear specifically excels in these types of things um, because... Maybe he is such a perfectionist and he gets to fuss over everything he does, every word he says, every like face he makes. So, uh, so, so yeah, he plays a big role in the, in the first, you know, first couple as well. Um, so I think he's, he's really in his element there. Let's talk a bit about some cast changes mid season. In fact, what involves the aforementioned Harry Shear? Harry's involved uh, clearly in a lot of these tape bits from the summer. As the season begins, though, Christian, you can see this from literally the first episode. He is already upset about not being used enough in the live portions of the show. He's upset because, as we'll hear a bit later, he, he's he's supposed to do more Reagan, and he doesn't. There, there's a lot of Reagan sketches there that are cut. He, on this cast, he's a B-level talent, but he's not going to play well with Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Gary Kroger and Rich Hall he wants to be with the big names and he can't quite, I don't know if he can't quite hold his own or the writers don't see him in those places, but there's no places for him to to work except in a lot of these pre-taped bits throughout the season. And so by episode 10, he's gone. He quits. He's unhappy early in the season and halfway through, well, a little more halfway through, it's what, 18 episodes, 17 episodes this season. Uh, he's gone again. And so he has this weird acid ale arc of being uh, the guy in season five who starts halfway through. All right, well, I should take that back. He starts at the beginning, but not named a full cast member until halfway through the season. Wants to come back season six and bring people who know what they're doing to help out. Mm-hmm. Comes back in, in season 10 and then still leaves halfway through season 10. It's the oddest acid arc, I think, of any cast member ever. And it all has to do with his... Um, persnicketiness, use that as a word, uh, about how these sketches are done, how he is utilized on the show. He's clearly insufferable. But in his defense, he, he says, you know, with regard to these Reagan sketches, look, they had they had to get me in my Reagan makeup and I had to sit there for eight hours in my Reagan makeup wait, waiting for me to do this bit on the show. And then three straight weeks, they canceled it. So three straight weeks, he got in all this Reagan makeup and... They they yanked him from the show. He's like, what am I doing here? But you know, he he does have <laughs> through his quotes, he, he has this sense. I think that he is the comedy police, and anything uh, that he deems a, a, a comedy crime uh, should uh, should not go on the on the show. He says he left for creative dif- differences, and his uh, a reporter called him and asked him about that. And his quote is quote. I was creative and they were different, <laughs> unquote. <laughs> so you can see that he seems to have quite an ego. 
But as we said, he's got he's got the one thing. He's got the one skill. He's got that golden voice, and he went on to do very well for himself on The Simpsons. So that's why we all still know who Harry Shearer is. He's on a podcast called The Green Room with Neil Griffiths talking a bit about SNL, which he doesn't do terribly often because he doesn't like talking about it. He does not even identify as a former SNL cast member, he essentially says in the interview. (laughs) But he is proud of the legacy because he is in some of those pre-taped sketches that still live on today. Harry Shearer here on his legacy from The Green Room with Neil Griffiths. I mean, I did, I helped create and and perform in one of the most frequently rerun sketches and frequently cited sketches in the history of the show, which is a sketch about male synchronized swimmers. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, okay. In terms of the amount of time I spent there and, and you know, there was one other sketch that I was part of, which gets mentioned and, and recognized a lot, which was... Uh, uh, Mike Wallace, the the sixty minutes interview, we're doing a, a an investigation of uh, defective novelty <laughs> items. Um, you know, for the amount of time I spent there, two two sketches that kind of linger or get re- rerun a lot is a pretty good percentage. You know, um, there are people who've been there for eight or nine years and haven't had that. Now, another guy who had a a fine legacy in films like Canine, Red Heat, uh, <laughs> Taking Care of Business, Mister Destiny is Jim Belushi. And Belushi's back for a second year of SNL, except he's gone for, is it just two episodes, I believe, in the middle of the season? Because he was fired. Dick Ebersole had enough. He fired Jim Belushi middle of season 10, and Belushi essentially went and begged for his job back and got it. And, uh, you know, Belushi was fine this year. Uh, on screen, uh, behind the scenes is the reason he was fired. He was very short-tempered and very, you know, very quick uh, to to to, to uh, relay his unhappiness about sketches or about his roles. And Ebersol kicked him out, and that brought him back a couple weeks later. Uh, Belushi talks a bit about this here in an interview with Bill Simmons on the Ringer podcast about his uh, maturity or lack thereof when he got SNL and how Ebersole helped him figure things out in season 10. Oh, I wasn't mature enough for the pressure. It was, you know, yeah. it was wild pressure. I'm, I'm a guy who wears my emotions on his sleeve. I'm not really that smart. Dick Ebersole just saved me. I was having a hard time. You know, you do something live and that's it. I mean... Where you are in that moment and that day is is where you're going to be forever, and it, it's there's a lot of pressure. I I would say it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I got a little out of hand, I got to say, and Dick Ebersol fired me, and I basically begged for my job back, and he had to sit down with me. He straightened my ass out, but I I owe a lot to Dick Ebersol. He was uh, he was tough with me and. You know, it was great. Yeah, I can't imagine it was easy for Jim Belushi to have all these whippersnappers come in, although they are pretty old. I think Short was 36 and Crystal was 37. Although they're very small. This is a very small cast. <laughs> I think uh, I think Short, aptly, uh, Crystal and Shearer are all about 5'6 or 5'7. Um, so it's a very tiny cast of men. Uh, but... Belushi probably thought, you know, having been there last season, that he was going to follow the the typical arc of of an SNL cast member, which is, you know, you get more and more bits. 
And then these guys come in and completely dominate the show and you're basically back to square one. So I can just imagine how that frustrated him. And he said, you know, a lot of the problems that he, were, he was having were due to, you know, alcohol and other substances and people in the offices were afraid of him because he, I think he put a chair through a wall at some point or something. So yeah, I think that's why Ebersol gave him the boot. And then brought him back. He said he was sorry. And then brought him back. Yeah. Uh, and, and he, I, I don't think it's in the, uh, no, it's not in the cut that we just played. And he said that second half of the season he felt was his best work on the show. He thought he really figured things out at that point in the second half of, of this season 10. Speaking of characters, we've talked a lot about them through the course of this episode so far. I think we've got to lay down some markers here on what's going on. So I found this, I found a list uh, of every or most every recurring character from this <laughs> 84, 85 season. Let me just read them very quickly so you get an idea of what we mean. And then we can talk a little bit about some of these, some of these characters and actually have some on the, on the origin of some of these characters. Uh, Ed Grimley, Martin Short. Uh, Lawrence Orbach, Martin Short. Lou Goldman, Billy Crystal. Willie and Frankie, Billy Crystal, Christopher Gesta. Don't you hate it when, don't you hate it when that happens? Uh, Buddy <laughs> Young Jr. to be an inexplicable recurring character that then got his own movie and Broadway show. I, okay. Uh, Fernando, who uh, began last year and, and comes back this season from Billy Crystal. Joe Franklin, host of the Joe Franklin Show. That's a crystal. Jackie Rogers Jr., who I always thought had an even bigger role in this season, but I think is on, is it three times? I think it's yeah, just three more times. Than three. Uh, Chi-Chi and Consuela, more on them in a bit. That's a Mary Gross and JLD joint venture. Nathan Thurm, the lawyer from Martin Short. Paul Harvey, Rich Hall. Ricky and Phil, who are uh, who are uh, Willie and Frankie, just, just with insults. Uh, the white guy, James Jim Belushi's recurring white guy character. And then Rich Hall and Robert Latta, who no one will ever know that name, but he's a guy who crashed uh, the White House, right? And uh, yep. and and then crashed all sorts of sketches throughout the year. That is a partial, incomplete list of the recurring characters in a 17-episode season. So you get an idea of how often they were coming back over and over again through the season. And that's one of the main uh, attributes of this season, Christian, is the heavy, heavy use of characters, particularly by Short and Crystal. And I think the preponderance of one and two person sketches. You don't see a ton of sketches involving three, four, five cast members. You have so many either single person or two person. In fact, Willie and Frankie, who like, they're fine. They're fine. But I, I was watching them this season and I wrote down a comment. I'm like, we're just, we're watching a radio drama because nothing happens. Nothing happens except they talk to each other, which is not the worst thing in the world, but that's it. They, they just talk to each other and tell each other things that you know, the masochistic ways in which they gave themselves the pain. And don't you hate it when that happens? But we're just watching this radio drama. You don't have to write around it, which again is why I say the writer's room was so unimportant this year. It, they just stand there in different, uh, they do different jobs and then they tell each other these things. That, that's all it is. Yeah, and they expect you to laugh at the same joke to begin every time, like, we're stallions yearning to run free, or, you know, something like that. They use the same line every time to set it up. And I really like Willie and Frankie, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite characters on the show as a youngster. Um, but yeah, when you're watching these back to back to back and you see four or five of them, you kind of 
you kind of get the idea. Yeah. So the other thing that I mentioned, I don't know if we were going to mention it here, because you have these characters, you have, you know, you have Crystal with his characters, you've got uh, Short with his characters. They're not in a whole lot of sketches together. It's almost like there are three teams in this year's SNL. There's the Crystal guest team. They, they, they partner up for a lot of stuff. There's the Martin Short team. And then there's the B team of everybody else that, that was on the show last year that is gasping for airtime and they can't they can't even get on with a decent with a decent sketch. So uh, you do have some some short crystal stuff, especially like on the Joe Franklin show where um, <laughs> where, where short is uh, Jackie Rogers Jr. But for the most part, I mean, you can't put like Ed Grimley and Fernando in the same sketch just because they're you know yeah. two completely different characters and they they couldn't possibly interact. So yeah, so it seems very fragmented to me. Let's hear a little bit about some of these characters. Um, we'll hear more about Fernando in a minute because that, that was one that caught on, that became very big. Billy Crystal here talking to the TV Academy Foundation about his favorite moment during his 17 episodes or 18 episodes on the show. It involves Fernando and a missing Barry Manilow. And Crystal here describes what happened at that point. I think is my favorite moment. Barry Manilow was scheduled, scheduled to be in the hideaway. He was performing at Radio City, which is right across the street from 30 Rock. At 11 o'clock, after his show ends, we get a message he's not coming. He's too scared to be in the hideaway. Doesn't want to be goofed on and what it doesn't, doesn't come. Dick says, what are we going to do? So there was a, a very large man on our staff named Bobby Ferraccio. Bobby used to drive the crane, the boom, so he would drive it around the set. And he was a huge guy. He was about 400 pounds, I would say. Sweetest guy, hilarious. I went to him, I said, Bobby, Manilow's not coming, just canceled. That mother, no, 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 here's my idea. You play him. I'll tell the audience, Manilow's not coming, but I can't disappoint my fans. So he, you're going to play Barry Manilow, and I'll ask you the same questions, right? And he went, okay. So there's a lot of these Fernando's hideaway segments, and they're all, um, all ad-lib. There's no script for them, which is why Crystal liked them. It was double dangerous. It was live, and there was no script. And that is one that worked out. The Manilow one works out very well. There's one with Hulk Hogan and Mr. T that works out very well. And others don't mm, work quite so well. <laughs> <laughs> Does the Hulk Hogan and Mr. T one work out that well? Because basically he just makes it's funny because good. they they break character. Yeah. And uh yeah, so maybe you so you should give Crystal a lot of credit for the Fernando Fernando's hideaways where he's basically just riffing, just ad libbing. But a lot of that ad libbing just means saying you look marvelous over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then, you know slipping in a, a good one-liner that he if improv people say that this is all off the cuff but of course he's he's thought about all this stuff yeah. beforehand so it is impressive but he bails himself out by using his catchphrases over and over and over so uh let's let's hear one more uh martin short talking uh with conan o'brien in fact on the creation of the nathan Thurm lawyer 
character. Um, and I would sort of tell you who it is, but Martin's going to explain that. And this is a great, <laughs> this is a great origin story. Uh, Martin Short with Conan O'Brien talking about Nathan Thurm. So there was a, a makeup artist that year on SNL, Marion Siebert. And she was the most defensive human being you had ever yeah. met in your life. You'd sit in her chair and she'd always chain smoke. You could do that inside in 84. Yeah. And she'd um, look at me. Your features don't match. This is tough for me. <laughs> She's dabbing. You're very pale. Yeah. So then about a month later, Christopher Gaston, Harry Shearer, and, and um, Billy and I were writing uh, a piece satirizing 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going to play the defensive lawyer, the lawyer who always represents the bad guy. And, those. Mm -hmm. and we even had a name for him, Nathan Thurm. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to play it. And Billy Crystal said, why don't you do it as Marion Siebert? He said, you do her behind her back all the time anyway. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 I'll be caught, I'll be caught. He said, oh, she won't know, they never know, he right. said. So I'd go down to the set, I got the same brand of cigarettes that she smoked, I, but I put a wire down the middle of mine so as the burned down the ash would never fall off. Yes, you know, yes. And I'd go down to the set, but I forget that Marion will be there because she's the head of makeup. So we start the take. I'm Nathan Thurm. She's over there. We both have our cigarettes. Harry's playing Mike Wallace. He says, Mr. Now, Mr. Thurm, uh, do you feel that was an appropriate behavior for a lawyer? And I say, I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm a lawyer. I would know that. And the director goes, cut. He's sweating. And Marion says, I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm a nigger. <laughs> so Nathan Thurm, actually one of the few characters that Martin Short brought this season that he did not bring from SCTV. Right, right. He brought Lawrence and Grimley and... Uh, some of his other people, uh, all from from SCTV, but thought of Nathan Thurm on the spot for the Minkman spot, as you just heard. And, and Short felt a lot of pressure beginning this season. He was making more money than any other cast member ever, ever had, except for Crystal, who made like five grand more or something along those lines. But a lot of money coming, you know, to the to the U.S. from SCTV. It didn't feel like he really got the show. In fact, he told Dick Ebersole after episode three this year he was going to quit. He he didn't cash any of his checks because. <laughs> If he was going to quit, he was going to have to give the money back, probably. And told Ebersole after episode three, he's like, I'm, I'm done. I don't think I, this is working out at all. And Ebersole said, stay till Christmas. You'll figure it out. And they did. It all worked out all right for the season. But, but Martin Short felt very much like he had to prove himself in some way at the beginning of this season. The, um, very first, uh, the very first sentence of his SNL chapter in his autobiography literally just says, like, I really wish I would have enjoyed my SNL time more. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, there's so much pressure on him. He came from SCTV where they effect, effectively, they write for six weeks and then they perform for six weeks on video. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 12 weeks, you're in, you're out, and then that's it. You're not staying up all night. <laughs> you're not, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you're not under this immense pressure to perform live. So it, it really took his toll on him, and which probably had a lot to do with the fact that he's only there a year. Uh, we should start galloping a little bit here to get toward the awards, but there's something I know that you want to discuss, and it's unavoidable when you watch these oh season boy. 10 episodes, and it is an unbelievably heavy, look, we talk about the heavy use of characters, all right, the heavy use of characters is accompanied by a heavy, heavy use of, you name it, blackface, brownface, yellowface, Seemingly, Billy Crystal has bought a Sherman Williams store, Sherman Williams <laughs> store at some point during the season and feels the need to use his own product on each and every episode. 
Um, he's playing Sammy Davis Jr. He's playing Hispanic characters. He's playing Asian characters and always, always in blackface, brownface, yellowface. Yeah, you remember a few years ago, there was a, a big, uh, big hunt for celebrities who had done blackface, uh, even if, you know, it was done ironically or whatever. Uh, so everybody was up in arms about it. And let me just say, it is bad. It was, it was bad in 1984. It's bad in the 2020s. And it'll be bad in 2080. Crystal himself has excused himself, I guess, for primarily for the reason that he's actually, first of all, let's look at the, the context of the time. Nobody cared. Literally nobody cared. I went back and they and care so little, by the way. I mean, I, I would imagine it's still the case, but at least as of a year ago, NBC still hosted a number of Sammy Davis Jr. sketches in which Billy Crystal's in full blackface on the official NBC SNL YouTube channel. Right. So as I said, I found this quote from, from uh, Billy Crystal, and here, here's what the, the article says. To critical acclaim, and not a peep of protest, he and Guest did an eight-minute film segment portraying old black baseball players. And here's Crystal's quote. Quote, Jesse Jackson loved, loved the ball players movie, Crystal Crows. And that's Jesse Jackson saying it, so it's okay to do that. <laughs> Unquote. So the fact that nobody really cared, there's not, there aren't very many, I mean, there's no criticism in any newspaper of this at all. He's in a cold open with Jesse Jackson, and he is as Sammy Davis Jr. in full blackface with Jesse Jackson, and Jesse Jackson doesn't seem to care at all. So, so we can look back and surely say it was bad at the time, but it's a little bit more complicated uh, there at the time. I also think, and this may be a little more controversial, I think there's a difference between doing a specific imitation of a right. specific person. I, I think this is a good point, by the way. Yeah. And and doing just a black guy. So when he does Sammy Davis Jr., he's like, I, I can't do my Sammy bit if I'm just like not wearing makeup. So he does Sammy, he does, you know, all those affectations and all that stuff. So if you're trying to really nail a specific person, I think that's one thing. I think that's why, uh, you know, Jimmy Fallon did a Chris Rock bit on SNL yep. years later where Chris Rock gave him a pass on that. He's like, yeah, he's just trying to do me or uh, Daryl Hammond when he was doing Jesse Jackson or whatever. When you're doing a specific person, I think it's one thing. If you're just doing like a black guy, I think it's a different thing. I think at, at that point you can, you should go get a black actor. And I think this is actually a, a, another point. They needed a person of color on the show somewhere in the writer's room or on the cast. Uh, I always enjoyed kind of the perspective from either Eddie or Garrett Morris. It, I think it added a little spice to the show, uh, a unique perspective to the show. And I know this is a this is a modern way of thinking about this. Like, well, of course they should have minorities on the show, but <laughs> I think it, I think it really did suffer from that lack of of perspective. But that's why I think that the black ball players thing is actually probably the most offensive because they're just doing the black accents. They're in full blackface. Ah, uh, boy, that's that one's rough for me. But if if you're trying to do somebody specific and trying to replicate who that person is, it's not great. But I think I think you can make uh, some. You can forgive it maybe a little bit more than you would otherwise. 
One other cast note before we move on, talk a bit about uh, some Ebersol stuff and then awards, of course, too, is the the females who are invisible, completely invisible, uh, whether it be Pamela Stevenson or even Mary Gross or even Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And this is where I give my second consecutive mea culpa to Julia Louis-Dreyfus because we talked in season, um, season eight, her first season about how well she was used and what is she, why is she complaining? She was great. She's all over the place. She's got great character. She's in great sketches. She's, she's fabulous. Wasn't doing anything last year and continues to do nothing this year. And I don't think it's due to her lack of talent. It is due to a lack of writers writing for Julia Louis-Dreyfus. But they try something. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Mary Gross, there are a couple of occasions in which they seem to team up to try to get more airtime or try to figure out some sketches by themselves. And one way they do this is through creating uh, a pair of characters who make frequent appearances and uh, somewhat fitting in with the brownface discussion we just had. uh, They play Chi-Chi and Consuela with some very bad Hispanic Mexican accents uh, coming through three or four times during the course of the season. And, you know, God love them for finding a way to get on the air. But that is not good stuff. I think my notes were, are these the worst recurring characters in SNL history? Because, yeah, the entire joke is just basically their accents. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's nothing else there. The fact that they speak in broken English, um, there's just, and it's it it's just heartbreaking because I think on the last podcast I said I couldn't think of, other than Wendy Weiner, any recurring characters for females right. on the show. I did miss... Uh, Mary Gross has this Irish character, Juicy Cahill, that popped up a couple of times. So maybe we could call her a recurring character, but uh, this is not good. And uh, it's just really disappointing that they're finally near the end of their <laughs> their last season on the show. They finally get a recurring character and they're this bad. I mean, you'd think Mary Gross would be able to put her hooks into a, a better character. Well, um, to, to that to that. And I guess, um, I don't mean to be cruel to Mary Gross, who's very good. She is she's very good in many places during her years on the show. But one of the things that becomes evident when Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Mary Gross play next to each other, with each other in these sketches is, Julia's, a, Julia's better at this <laughs> by, by a fairly wide margin. <laughs> uh, so that, that sort of becomes apparent the more they, they, they pair up and partner off during the course of the season. Uh, Dick Ebersole, a couple of Dick Ebersole notes here. His last full year, he's still messing with Saturday Night News. There are guests, uh, guest hosts, guest anchors, and then a literal guest anchor because Christopher Guest takes it over for most of the season. And Guest is not great, as you might expect. I'm not sure who looks at Christopher Guest and says, yes, you, you, master of deadpan, emotionless right. one. You go read these funny headlines. Uh, there are many times when the, the, the crowd is unsure if that was a punchline because the cadence doesn't change and there's no indication <laughs> that he's done with that story. So it's very uncomfortable. But to his uh, credit, or to excuse him a bit, uh, by the end of the year, there are essentially no jokes on Saturday Night News and Christopher Guest just acts as a conduit to introduce various commentaries on SNN, on Saturday Night News. There's... There are there are there are uh, newscasts in which there are th- like three jokes total throughout the twelve minutes or whatever it is, and so it it just devolves into something that is not 
commenting or talking about the news or even trying to tell jokes about the news at all. Right. Um, Christopher Guest, in my mind, is a genius. I, I could not get enough of his movies. Uh, Waiting for Guffman is one of my favorite movies of all time. But again, he has failed to unlock what Weekend Update or SNN is. He has Dan Aykroyd disease, which is he thrives when he plays other characters, when he's got a wig on or a mustache on or something else. And, you know, Aykroyd has said this himself. He he just didn't want to be himself. He was not good at it. And Christopher Guest, yeah, he's just a guy they're reading, completely <laughs> deadpan. And the jokes don't work, and it, it's not very good. We should note that for the first, what is it, half of the season, they st- they're still going on with the host does right. yeah. uh, SNN bit, which, again, isn't good. I thought George Carlin was actually pretty decent at it. Uh, Jesse Jackson, I think, was pretty good at it. But uh, I'm glad they got rid of it, and we will soon find out why it's good they got rid of got rid of it and went back to a uh, basically a full-time weekend update host. The other thing that Eversol does is push the musical guest deep into the show where <laughs> it's the very last show of the season. And sometimes the shows that we see that the run order is jumbled a bit, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate. Uh, Greg Kinn is the musical guest uh, of the Jeopardy song, but this is far past the Jeopardy song. And so he plays two songs you've never heard of. And he's on in two of the last three segments of the night. It's like, <laughs> Greg, welcome to New York, SNL. So glad you're here. You're going to play two songs in the last 10 minutes of the show. All right, have fun. <laughs> I guess there's some overall tone stuff. And we, 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 we talked back and forth about this today, about season 10 and its lack of uh, what I call big swings, lack of, of risk-taking. Uh, there's a there's a lull in quality about midway through the season where there are four or five shows without, as we would grade them, you know, a four star or a five star level sketch nowhere to be found. The end, you kind of get this workmanlike, dependable sketch comedy that uh, again is heavy on characters, uh, some chuckles, but no no huge laughs, no giant laughs, no risk taking. And it's, I, I wrote down somewhere that there's episode 13, 14. It, they're just sleepwalking through this. Like things are happening and there are a couple of jokes here and there, but there, there, is no, there, there are no sharp edges. There's nothing you can sink your teeth into in the course of an entire episode at times. Yeah. I mean, one of the original selling points for Saturday Night Live was that it was going to be, you know, for young people, it was going to be subversive. It was going to be edgy. And this season is none of those things. It's basically, there's actually one sketch. I said, you know, Short and, and Crystal aren't in many sketches together. There's actually one where they play two kids of vaudeville performers. Yeah, which I hated, but you thought it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it had a Milwaukee reference, so, you know, I'm in on that. Um, but it's basically that. It's basically vaudeville. It's, there's, there's, there's nothing edgy about it. You know, a lot of the jokes you have to... To think back to, you know, vaudeville and, um, you know, those types of performers, performers from 20, 30 years ago. It's because, you know, like I said, these are these are old guys at this point. I don't think there are a lot of uh, people on SNL right now who are 37 or 38 years old. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not the humor for the young people anymore. It's basically just, you know, it's just pillow soft. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's a little song and dance, a little little shuffle here and there. 
But if you're looking for stuff that really um, that's controversial or has a you know a social meaning to it or any of that stuff, it's not here. This really ticked off Harry Shearer, who was there <laughs> for the first ten episodes or nine episodes. He, he didn't like what the show was this year, and he was not afraid to say so behind the scenes and not afraid to say so years and years later. Again, Harry Shearer here on The Green Room with Neil Griffiths talking about the lack of political, the lack of bite in this season 10. Well, A, I, I think people who don't have comedy talent should not be on top comedy shows. That's a that, I know pretty that. standard. But worse yet, I think a satire show which is then bending over to serve a politician's desire to humanize his image is, is uh, irretrievably corrupt. And we actually, when I was at SNL the second time, we uh, actually convinced the producer to stop. He said, this show gets ratings no matter what. You don't need guest hosts. Just let us do the show. And so the first episode of the year, uh, we were hostless. And by show three... Uh, we were hosted by Jesse Jackson. And it was like, you know, okay, now, and he moves all his people in there and it's Saturday Night Live as a branch office of Operation Push for the week because we, he could make free long distance calls. And as we wrap up before we begin to hand out our awards for season 10, I kind of feel like we've got to put a bow on this because we've been a little, I, I don't know if we feel jumbled. I, I kind of sense a bit of jumbledness to what we've tried to lay out for season 10 because it is so singular, right? Every there, there are so many things happening in this one season and they didn't carry over from the last year and they don't carry forward to the next year. And so we're trying to squeeze a lot in here. But I would say, I, I know there are places in which this is rated an all-time great season, a top 10 season. There is no way that that's true. It's not an all-time great season of SNL. I would argue it's not even a great season period. Are there great moments? Yeah. And a lot of them are in those tape segments. So there are great moments. I don't think it is a great season by any stretch of the imagination, but it did, um, it did resonate with the public in a way that lingered. And that goes again, those pre-tape segments that live on and those characters and catchphrases that people do remember. <laughs> Uh, very quickly here, and then you can you can chime in. Bill, Billy Crystal, again, talking to the TV Academy Foundation about the way that Fernando, the character and his catchphrases, just exploded during this season 10 of SNL. And it's not because the ratings jumped like 50%. There weren't necessarily more people watching SNL, but the way they presented the characters the catchphrases, people did respond to that. Billy Crystal here for the TV Academy Foundation. Every place was you look marvelous. I still get it. I still get it all these years later. And it was said to me by so many people. Henry Kissinger on a Concord. I ended up sitting next to Dr. Kissinger. And when I sat next to him, he goes, you look marvelous. You look marvelous. Um, Ted Kennedy in the Senate when Robin and, and, and Whoopi and I went there for comic relief. Uh, you, uh, you look marvelous. It was all over the place. I'm sure everyone says it like it's the first time anyone's thought to do that. To yeah, to this day. Like, I, I did it, no one, I'm smarter than you. Yeah. Uh, and when did you start with the, it's better to look good than to feel good? He actually said that. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah, on The Tonight Show. I just bent it around a little bit. Well, you know, John, I'd, I'd, 
I'd rather look good than feel good. You know that. And I just made it. It's better to look good than feel good. He actually said that. And sure, you do still hear it today, too, occasionally. You look marvelous. That's Fernando. That's Fernando. Probably from, from Billy Crystal, you hear it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> hey, remember, remember me from the 80s? <laughs> you look marvelous. <laughs> so was it great in any way? Uh, this is not a great season. Uh, I don't know if it's even a top five season from um, from the first 10 years. Now, I will admit my biases because this is kind of the first year <clears throat> that I really got into SNL. And uh, we'll talk about this in a little bit. But, I mean, a lot of this stuff really hits with me just because I know how I felt about it at the time. But, yeah, I mean... You know, some years we or some weeks we do, well, every week we do the best catchphrases at and our awards. And some years there are no catchphrases. That is not going to be a problem this year <laughs> <laughs> uh, because every character has his own has his own catchphrase. So yeah, I, I think it's it is the recurring characters, it's the catchphrases, it's the stuff that people remember that get re, gets repeated over and over again. Like how many people remember how great. Eddie Murphy is as an old Jewish guy on the bench on his last on his last sketch. Well, probably not many. Yeah, that's why we have many, that's why we have the underrated many, and uh, and forgotten uh, category coming up. Absolutely, we're do we're doing you all a solid by sending you all to this to this stuff. Also, uh, I'm finding a lot a lot of these sketches, almost all the sketches from season nine were were on YouTube. So hopefully, a bunch uh, from the season are as well. So we're bringing it all to you. But yeah, let's go on to awards. Awards, as we hand out each and every week. We take turns telling you who wins these. No hardware involved. Maybe sometime down the road, we'll see. Don't forget to check out wasn'tthatspecial.com. Please join us, annual basis, monthly basis, or on the very fine executive producer level. All the information benefits explained there at wasn'tthatspecial.com. And also invite you to follow and interact with us on X or Twitter, formerly Twitter, at 50 years of SNL, at five zero years of SNL. All right, Christian, it's awards time for season 10. And we start as we do each and every week with our most valuable performer. And it's your turn, my friend, to Ooh. start the season awards this year. We, we alternate who goes first. And we should mention occasionally, we never discuss, never is a harsh word, 99.5% of the time, we do not discuss these awards before we hand them out. So what we say is a surprise to each of us for the most part. I don't know who Christian's going to take for most valuable performer here. That doesn't mean that based on the uh, our discussions, I, I, can, I, I, can, I can kind of divine who you're going to pick. So I try to pick uh, other stuff. So most valuable performer. This year, I feel like there's a choice of two, two major ones that we've already discussed. It feels like if you're a crystal or a short guy, it's almost like you're a you're a Beatles or a Rolling Stones guy. You you're gotta a be Coke one or, or the Pepsi other. guy. I am a short guy. I just think he's great. He injected a new vibe into the show, kind of a new. I mean, like I said, he's he's in his mid to late thirties, but he also has a vibrancy a youthfulness uh, that, that the show needed. Uh, he's a workhorse. He does big characters and he does them really well. He does minor characters really well as well. He's in the, the film bits and he has some of the best, 
the best roles in the filmed bits. He wasn't having fun on the show, and you couldn't tell. It seemed like he had uh, he had free reign to do whatever he wants. Look, he's he was on Canadian TV at like age eight. He's he he's a, a lifelong performer, and I think you can tell. He's got some of the best characters. He's got Ed Grimley. He's got Ethan Thurm and Jackie Rogers Jr. and uh, all these other things. So I just think he was so integral to the, to the show this year. Had it just been Crystal and Guest, I don't think it would have been nearly as successful. So I'm picking Martin Short. And not because I am particularly enamored of his performances, but I think the MVP is Billy Crystal. Because he is the he is the Murphy figure of this season for Dick Ebersole. Uh, things revolve around Billy Crystal. Billy can do whatever he wants. There's a a show late in the season where there's just three straight Billy Crystal character, you know, six minute long things where he just he just he just goes. You know, you pull a string and he goes. And and Crystal, you know, I think what Ebersole learned from season nine and a little from season eight. You know, from season nine, he took the fact that, hey, you, you can tape stuff and it's okay. He did that with with Eddie Murphy in season nine, all the pre-taped stuff before the season started. And he's like, that worked out okay. We can do it again in season 10. And, he, and so he did. And I think the other thing he learned from eight and nine particularly is focusing on your best talent and giving them all the opportunities in the world to succeed is an okay strategy, at least in, in his mind, for how he wanted the show to look and feel. And Crystal absolutely takes over the Murphy role in this cast. He is the central figure. He gets the most air airtime. He has the most characters. His characters come back all the time. He does impressions. You know, he's on with, with Christopher Guest and the Willie and Frankie. He's on with him again, Ricky and Phil, which again are very <laughs> similar characters in many ways. And yet both of them get on the air. Uh, he's yeah. doing weekend update stuff. He's got Buddy Young Jr., Fernando's the breakout star. He hosts Joe Franklin. I mean, Billy Crystal is everywhere. And if you, well, I don't really want to go that way. This is not necessarily performance-based. I, I don't think that he deserved uh, quite the same pedestal as as Eddie on the show. But Eversol gave it to him, and he took it and ran. And this season 10 really is defined by the contributions that that Crystal made so much, in fact, that he was nearly invited back the next year to be the the permanent host of SNL. That's what the, that's what Ebersole thought about Crystal and and thought about his abilities to work within his idea of what the show was. So yeah, Billy Crystal for me is the most valuable player. Performer. He does get <laughs> he does get to be a bit much because he's on so much. But from what you read in the in the books, yes. He was beloved on the show. Yeah. Like he he really got along with everybody. He wrote he, for other people. He wrote for everyone. Yeah. 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 Which is not something that that you know, if you if you if you get a writing credit on SNL and you're also a performer, you're most certainly writing your own stuff writing for yourself. Yeah. And Krista would write for other people on the show as well and wanted to be in every sketch and you know, I it's not like I've read <laughs> awful things about Crystal that make me hate him and that's not it at all by all accounts. He was very kind and nice behind the scenes, but man, he is he is everywhere. <laughs> right. And I, I think he is immensely talent, talented as well. It just, sometimes it gets to be a bit much. <laughs> Least valuable performer of this season. 
There's only one answer to this. And we got to have the same answer. So here's how you know you might be the least valuable performer. (laughs) If when going back and compiling these awards, I actually have to go back and double check what your first name was. You're the least valuable performer. I, 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 I was writing, I was about to write down Andrea Stevenson and no, 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 that's not right. No, no, no. Pamela. Yeah. Pamela Stevenson. Uh, her, her biggest claim to fame this year, Christian, I believe, I believe is she's the one who hits the jukebox in the opening montage to tell us who the musical guest is. That's her, that's her best move of the season. What, you didn't love her Cindy Lauper every other episode? I did not love her Cindy Lauper. <laughs> and she's got or the weekend Joan update, Collins, the weekend or, update yeah. thing where her, her breasts move uh, by their own, on their own. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why she was on the show or She what. was a Shearer pick. Shearer pushed for Pamela Stevenson. Oh, boy. Um, and yeah, they were both gone within a year, <laughs> so... <laughs> That's how that goes. Um, yeah, she's she's not good. I, I wish I had more to say about her. She's she's barely on the show. She's <laughs> she does Joan Collins. She does uh, Cindy Lauper. Who else does she do? She uh, there there are a lot of sketches in this season where it's just like, hey, hey musical stars, aren't they crazy? Yeah, pop she stars are Billy, weird, does, aren't they? Yeah, she does Billy Idol. Yes, she's Billy Idol. Yeah, yeah. And it's a weird, like. It's like Billy Idol should be a 50s crooner, but he has the wrong face for it or something. I don't know. It's confusing. Yeah, right face, she, right voice, wrong face or something for the, the eyes without a face right. uh, parody. All right. We don't have to yeah. say anything more about Pamela Stevenson because she's not coming back <laughs> next year. It just doesn't matter. Best sketch. Let's talk about happier things. Best sketch of this season 10 and... Uh, this is Christian. Christian, you've got your three, two, one, your best sketch of season 10. So my number three is Superman Auditions, which is from the Christopher Reeve episode. Of course, he played Superman in the uh, movie that had come out, I guess, a few years before. What was the name of that movie? I keep... Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Superman. That's right. Yeah, Superman. Yeah. So you have three men there to audition for the role of Superman in the movie. And the director, is it Richard Donner? who yes. played by Belushi, played by Belushi. Yep. makes them do things that Superman would do uh, using laser vision to set fire to uh, curtains or catching a bullet in their teeth. So they do all of these things. And yet Rich Hall, who's kind of like the nerdy guy who's, who's trying out, gets the role. But then I guess he has like a soup, uh, a soap commercial or something. And so he can't, <laughs> He can't fulfill the role. He can't take the role in this movie. So they're like, okay, well, we'll give it to Christopher Reeve, even though uh, he can do actually all the things in real life that Superman would do in the movie. But it's, you have a good line about this, and I'll let you go ahead and take that. Oh, I forget my line. I know it's in my notes, but... (laughs) It's very much like the Chris Farley, um, Patrick Swayze kind of trying out for Chippendales. Oh, that was your line. You you just forget writing it. (laughs) Wait, I wrote that? Yes. On your, oh. on your first pass through, you wrote that line. <laughs> for, the, for the listeners at home, I watched this season. When, I, when we were figuring out whether we were going to do this podcast, I was like, I'll watch a full season and see if I, we, this is actually doable. So I watched season 10. And then when watching this again, I don't remember any of these sketches. I was like, did I watch this like three years ago? And it turns out I watched it last summer. Yeah. And I still months, don't remember three anything. Years, so anyway. Same thing. Yeah, that was your behind. line. That was your line. Yeah. 
Uh, it's a little behind the scenes stuff there for you. Uh, number two. <laughs> oh, but by the way, I'll just mention that's a really fine sketch. It was in the ballpark for mine, but didn't make the top three. Number two, male synchronized swimming. It's uh, from the very first episode, one of the one of the movies, the pre-film bits that we we've talked about. It is Harry Shearer and uh, Martin Short playing his uh, SCTV character Lawrence. And who can't swim, <laughs> and yet he's in uh, male synchronized swimming, and it's it's a precursor to the the Christopher Guest movies where he films them and they're they're basically ad libbed and they just have a really great feel to them, and uh, it, it's just amazing. There are great lines, you know. Christopher Guest is uh, plays their coach, you know. It was it was right around 1984 where, as I recall. You know, the Olympics had just taken place. Yes. And people really got into female uh, synchronized swimming. And so when they filmed this, it was a few months later. And I guess Ebersol said something to the effect that, yes. why are you going to do this? Nobody, nobody remembers the Olympics at all. And uh, they said, well, we'll make this good enough where people remember the Olympics. It's, remember it's, it's synchronized it's a, swimming. It's a very sheer line. It's Shearer who said it, I think. It's, we'll make them remember. <laughs> we'll be so good, we'll make them remember the Olympics. Right. Where, But there are so many quotable lines from this thing. It's, it's amazing. Um, and it was right off the gate, right out of the gate. I think there was some controversy among the people on the, on the cast. Like, how are we going to space all of these pre-film bits out throughout the season. And Ebersol is like, just throw them all up front because we want, you know, this we want the season to be a hit right off the bat. So that's why you had, you know, these these banger of uh of pre-film bits right up front in the season. Officially it's got you know, like zero acceptance. I don't swim. So I mean no, of course not. Nobody is just gonna walk up and hand us a gold medal, especially since and Synchro isn't even in the 88 Olympics yet. But that's okay, because we could use the time. Because I'm, I'm not that strong a swimmer. But I mean, that just means that, you know, like 92 were a lot for the goal. And then they're number one. I think we're going to have the same one. It's white like Eddie. Now we have we talked about this. Is it is it black like Eddie? Is it white like Eddie? Is I think it white I, like me? I What's think I inad, I think I inadvertently called it black like Eddie earlier in the show, but it's right. white. It's white like Eddie. Is the it's the is the official name of that sketch was white like Eddie. All watching all of season nine, I was like, okay, I know at least there's one more five star. <laughs> you kept Eddie saying that in our conversation. I'm like, yeah. no, there's I'm not. Like, you you know. It's coming up. <laughs> I'm like, it's coming up, it's coming up, it's coming up. And then Eddie leaves the show. I'm like, hey, wait a, wait a minute. And of course, as I said, I had just watched the season <laughs> like six months ago and I should have known that it was coming in season 10. Anyway, so it's it's Eddie Murphy comes back to the show. This is actually kind of an extension of his monologue where it's- Yes, they hand it off. He's going, yeah. yeah, he's going undercover as a white man to see what- <laughs> <laughs> what life as a white person is like. And this is kind of the edge that I, I thought was missing this season for sure, for sure. But he puts on the white makeup. He puts on the, uh, uh, you know, the mustache and he looks very much like uh, Ned Flanders on, on uh, the Simpsons. He was a real life person, but he, uh, he goes to a bank 
and they just give him a bunch of money because he's a white man. And then he goes onto a bus and there's one black person on the bus who gets off the bus. And then the bus turns into a, a, a party where, hey, now the black little guy is gone. So it's just kind of like an idealized view of what the life of white people is like. They just give people, the bank gives him money. Um, and it's just, it's just amazing. And it's, it's edgy and it has a good, I mean, it has like an important social message and all that kind of stuff. And it's uh, written by Andy Breckman, I believe. Yes. So there's that as well. So that's... Uh, my, White like Eddie. That's my my pick. That's my number two. My number right. two. And the only thing I'll add is, and I didn't see this or recognize it until the second or third time I was watching it for, for prep, but the ways that Eddie gets ready to be white is he watches <laughs> lots of Dynasty uh, and he reads a bunch of Hallmark cards. And to hear Eddie read the inside of a Hallmark card in his white man voice is hilarious hilarious yeah. uh but yes that's excellent uh and good side uh, uh appearance by jim downey who plays the shopkeeper who tells eddie just take it just, just take it take take the paper you don't have to pay just take it that was a close but what <laughs> we don't have to bother with these formalities do we mr white huh? <laughs> what a silly negro <laughs> Just take what you want, Mr. White. Pay us back any time. Or don't. We don't care. <laughs> so that, that's my number two. So we'll, we'll do, I guess for me, we'll do two, three, one. Uh, my best sketches this season. Number three is one that I, I, can't, I, I really can't believe you are so down on the profiles in sports chess oh coach uh all yeah, this is weird so we'll have we have six well we have five different sketches here because we both picked white like eddie and four of them are going to be um uh the pre-tape pre, pre uh, are going to be taped yeah and profiles in sports is one of those taped uh sketches and it's one that has a pretty decent reputation even <laughs> till today here's the weird thing about this this is from the fifth episode of the season, which I think that's the George Carlin episode. It is. It's from the fifth episode of the season, November 10th, 1984. I had assumed for years, I had assumed until today when I looked it up, that this sketch was in response to Bobby Knight throwing a chair across the court. And of course, Bobby Knight just died. Moment of silence for Bobby Knight. Yeah. It's not? It's not. He didn't throw the huh. chair until 1985. And wow. this was filmed. This was filmed during the summer of '84. So, I mean, Bobby Knight was still doing some Bobby Knight stuff before 1985. Right. Surely, but that chair throwing had the reputation of being yes, a hothead. But that chair throwing incident, the one that is seared into people's memories, doesn't happen until after this sketch, where Jim Belushi plays a high school chess coach acting like Bobby Knight on the sidelines, going crazy, yelling at his his players who are in the middle of a game. Uh, you're in the locker room. He's, you know, chess is a sport that's, that's not one on the field. It's it's one in preparation. And he's drawing a play on the on the chalkboard. But to do so, he's got to draw the whole chessboard. So he draws all the lines, and then he starts coloring in every other square before he tells the players how to how to act. There is um, 
um, there's a Wheaton High reference, which I believe is where the Belushi's went to school in, in Wheaton, just right. outside uh, Chicago. It shows Chicago him, bias. Yeah, it shows him. Uh, it shows him in a late night film session, you know, dark room, trying to stay awake as he watches film of, of past chess games. He's apparently illegally recruiting Russians, uh, like sixty year old Russians, to be on his chess team, his high school chess team. And at the end, you know, like the chair throwing portion is he, he walks up and he moves a piece off the board in the middle of a game and the crowd goes nuts and people start fighting. Um, it's a it's a it's a really good taped piece. And again, I think it's even better <laughs> since it happened before Bobby Knight went totally yeah. crazy on Russian. the sidelines in 85. Very good. So that profile in sports sketch, I like a lot. For Brockville Center High, dedicated to turning raw kids into chess champions. Will you call that Kathleen? Come on, why don't you just give it the king? Give it to him. Now, a lot of people think that chess games are won on brilliant moves. They're not. The match is really won or lost long before the pieces are set up. Next Saturday, Wheaton High. Big match, tough school. They're using the Sicilian defense. How do we counter it? Simple. <laughs> The fundamental thing about chess, knowing the rules. When you go there and move, move night night. Yeah, the horsey thing, the horsey thing, come on! Move it, move it, move that bishop. White Like Me is my number two, or, let's did it again. White Like Eddie is my number two sketch, and you covered, covered all that. And so my number one sketch of the season is one, I, I just, I was totally blown away by this, by how good it is. And it's one that I... I know I've seen bits and pieces of. I don't know if I had seen it start to finish or certainly don't recall seeing it start to finish in a long, long time. And that's from episode six, the 60 Minutes episode, 60 Minutes mm. parody on uh, novelty items, novelty shops. And yes. this is the introduction of the Minkman brothers, Chris Guest and Billy Crystal, and Harry Shearer, again, using his gift to do... An absolutely spot on. Um, I was going to say George Wallace, that, but that's a different. <laughs> yeah. Mike uh, Wallace. Right? Mike Wallace. Thank you. It's not George Wallace. Do an absolutely <laughs> spot on Mike Wallace of CBS in 60 Minutes. And the conceit here is that uh, the, the, the introduction. Now, you, you have to know 60 Minutes a bit and you have to know Mike Wallace a bit. But the way that Shearer does Mike Wallace introing the piece on 60 Minutes is divine comedy. It is so perfect. He is dead on. And the whole sketch is like that, which is what makes it perfect. It is a perfect parody of 60 Minutes with uh, with, with Shearer doing a perfect take on Mike Wallace and with Guest and Crystal absolutely perfect as their Minkman characters, guys who have made their bones in the novelty item industry with you know the chinese finger trap and the, the fake spilled coffee and all these things and they're very concerned and mike wallace says why should people care if they don't get their money's worth out of a 250 novelty it's like well if you do this and it explodes in your face all of a sudden you're talking lawsuit and then you go through the 60 minutes piece and they bring you to china where the fake stuff comes from and you visit the minkman brothers plant and what put it over the top for me is the whoopee cushion testing machine that they employ at the <laughs> Minkman Brothers, which is this, not a dummy, but, you know, a, a body mannequin in a seated position that they keep bringing down over and over again as new whoopee cushions are placed down. So that's how they test their whoopee cushions at the Minkman Brothers factory. The cuts are immaculate. The script is immaculate. 
it's just so perfect. It, it's not only like a smiley sort of, wow, they did it so well, but there were also a few laugh out loud moments in the course of that sketch. And that's why I think it's the best of season 10. Defective novelties are showing up on American shelves in ever increasing numbers. <laughs> but not only does that worry federal regulators, it has two American businessmen fighting for their lives, almost literally. Today, if you go to a party and you see, you know, a whoopee cushion or you see a plastic lost lunch or the um, phony doggy duty. Yeah. And if it doesn't look good, it's probably not a Minkman. No. And that makes us look bad. Herb and Al Minkman are third generation joke makers. They grew up in a world of dribble glasses and Chinese finger prisons. But they're growing old in a very different world. One overrun with pirate novelties. This is a cheap imitation of a Minkman Chinese finger prison. Try it, Mike. All right. <laughs> Nothing happened. It would be good enough if it was just the Minkmans, but then you get the attorney for the Chinese That's company. Right. I forgot. Off. Yes. Then you end up with Nathan Thurm <laughs> defending the Chinese ripoffs. He's his debut. Yes, absolutely. So that's amazing, and it it has an special, especially uh, soft spot for people. Well, people have a soft spot that were like Mad Magazine consumers who would flip to the to the back and see the ads for the novelties. Like you can get fake dog poo for a dollar yeah. and fool your friends. And, you know, fake fake uh, vomit and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, so I was right in that age demographic, so it was perfect for me. And the fact that these are, like, old guys still into novelty, <laughs> you know, <laughs> finger traps and stuff, it was amazing. All right, those are our best sketches of the season, and we move to the most underrated or forgotten sketches of the season. And I don't know right. uh, Christians, of course, but... Mine are snake draft, so you're up. Yeah, that's right. Mine are three live sketches that took place live on Saturday night. Nothing pre-taped here in the most underrated or, for, or forgotten sketches. And there are a few here. All, all three of these I really like. So, although perhaps tellingly, all six of these sketches on my list of best and underrated forgotten are all in the first 11 episodes of the season. So, again, kind of a top-heavy sort of year. Third most underrated forgotten sketch from episode 11, one of the few good moments from the Roy Scheider episode, the uh, Jaws star who is hosting SNL. I love this sketch where he is trying to sell his Super Bowl tickets for the Dolphins 49ers Super Bowl, <laughs> yeah. Super Bowl 19. And he has won, we find out later, he has won these 50 yard line, two tickets in a contest. And he's standing outside trying to scalp them. And he has an asking price he's looking for. And that asking price is $5 million. <laughs> and he is unwilling to negotiate in any way, shape, or form off the asking price of $5 million. So someone comes up and offers $600, $700, $5 million. Jim Belushi comes up in a dolphin's jacket. He's like, ah, great, great. I'll give you 700. All right, 800. Five million dollars. And Belushi said, all right, well, $1,500. That's all the cash I have. And he refuses, of course. And then you see a little swipe and it says, you know, cl close to game time. And I can't, is it? Yeah, it's Rich Hall who says, all right, 
My final offer, $840,000. You get $120,000 in cash, the rest in bearer bonds. <laughs> Still refuses. He wants $5 million. Belushi comes back and he's got, I don't remember the cash amount, you know, $100,000 in cash and a $2 million painting. Will you accept this? No. So the game starts and he doesn't sell the tickets. And this is what sort of pushes it over the top is he, he goes back to his family and he's got to explain to his family how he didn't sell his tickets for any price. It's like, you wouldn't believe this. But a few minutes ago, grown men were offering me upwards of $2 million in cash and securities for my tickets. And I wouldn't sell them. I didn't think it was right to not get my asking price. <laughs> so there's this little play inside a play in which he has to explain himself. And his wife says, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of you. You're just, you're too good for this world. Uh, and at the end, uh, uh, a little weirdly, but lightning comes down and strikes him. And he, uh, so anyway, uh, the end probably kept it from being a total five is what I'm saying to you. But the rest of it is so funny, so good. Uh, I like that one an awful lot. My last offer. $840,000. 300000 in cash, the rest in bearer bonds. What do you say? I would say you're only $4,160,000 short. It's just about kickoff time, all right? You're going to have to start dealing. Now, I got 114000 in cash, all right? That's all I've got. But wait, we got something else. Just show them the painting. It's a landscape by John Constable, the 19th century British painter. Romney Marsh with Kent Cathedral in background. Uh, it sold in 1960 for $2 million. Sorry, friend. $5 million. Number two from episode nine, uh, which is the Eddie Murphy show. Uh, Milestones talk show featuring two guests. Oh. Doug oh. Flutie and Desmond God. Tutu. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> well, you go first next right. time. <laughs> so uh, it is um, it is Chris Guest who's hosting Milestones and Doug Flutie's on at Twitch Hall and Desmond Tutu is played by Eddie Murphy and the crowd already has a laugh <laughs> from the juxtaposition of those two characters on this show, Milestones. And so we talked to Desmond Tutu about, you know, bringing peace to for five for like 30 seconds and turns to Doug Flutie. Well, you, you're the Heisman Trophy winner. Take us through this play. You know, that, that uh, Hail Mary play, Boston College, Miami. And so they do it as they're doing it. Desmond Tutu has the Heisman Trophy and he, he breaks the arm, the stiff arm off the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> and so he's like, what do I, what do I do? And he tries to, he tries to put it back and he kind of sticks it on, but he sticks it on backwards. And so the arm is at this really odd angle as, as Christopher Guest hands it back and here's the Heisman Trophy and everyone looks at it sort of weirdly. And so Chris Guest says, let's take a look at that play one more time. Describe this play to us again and, and turns his chair around, hands it back to Desmond Tutu says, fix this, fix this. And so Desmond Tutu takes this ribbon and then wraps the arm <laughs> around and he tells Flutie it's like some sort of uh, some sort of peace. I can't remember how he how he explains it, but it's some sort of very it's some sort of very high honor to have this ribbon tied around a, a trophy like this. And so it's not good enough. And so guess turns him around again. Tell us about the play one more time. He's like, I already told you about it twice. And so then they take a soldering iron. They try to and it ends up they melt down the trophy. You get this really great escalation as 
on the other side, Doug Flutie is rewatching this play and explaining the same <laughs> details over and over and over again. Uh, it's really a fun, fun sketch. And from your reaction, I assume, is also on your list. Uh, it's number one on my list. Number one. The, uh, the absurdity of seeing Desmond Tutu <laughs> scramble around trying to fix it. Let's try to fix the Heisman Trophy that he broke. It's just they they tried like similar type of absurdity with uh, the Joe Franklin show, where you put like kind of all these weird characters in the same spot, but nothing hits it like this. Yeah. Um, because he's such like a revered, serious world figure, and yet he's scrambling around. Yeah, <laughs> he's like sticking, yeah, using gum to try to stick the arm of the Heisman <laughs> Trophy back on. Uh, it is amazing. It's my it's my number one uh, underrated or forgotten sketch. Doug, why don't we watch that again? You know, let's see that again in slow motion. Just whip around here. And look well, at the as monitor, I think okay? I clearly indicated before, uh, it was a split right three or uh -huh. um, what we call a flood tip uh, formation right. there. Uh, I'm scrambling back here. They're trying to fix this thing up quick. Do it and, uh, quickly, okay? They're trying to make that kid into one of these buckles. Well, you're not doing it fast enough. What are you supposed to do now? Fix it. That's all I'm asking you to fix it. You're not supposed to break it. I didn't break it on purpose. What about the stuff yes, in your yeah. hair? What is that? That's a carefree curl. I'm not going to make it stick on. <laughs> <laughs> just make it curly up. Well, just just fix angle. it, all right? And my number one, who I'm sure I'm stealing from you as well, is um, is a pure writer's sketch. It's pure wordplay uh, from the episode six with Ed Asner hosting yep. the nuclear plant. And this is a really late one in the show, if I remember correctly. And again, it's just, it's a total writer's sketch. And it's, it's just based on like one, one line. And Ed Asner's retiring from the nuclear plant. And everyone's like, we're sure going to miss you around here. It's not going to be the same without you. And you, you have all this knowledge and you know everything about this nuclear plant. And we'll have to call you. We'll have to ask for advice. And Ed, Ed Asner says, look, this is a very highly sophisticated piece of equipment. And you're now in charge of it. And you only have to remember this one thing. You can't put too much water in a nuclear reactor. And he, <laughs> all right, bye. And he walks off. And then it's uh, one of the things I like about this is it's all the B team. It's Julie Louis Dreyfus, it's Rich Hall, and Gary Kroger starring. And so, yeah, you said one of what well, your favorite thing about it is that it was no short, no short, no, no crystal, crystal, right? I, I just I like it. And 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 so then the characters who are left at the plant have to decide what did he mean? Did he mean? You can't put too much, like don't put any in there. Or did he mean you can't put too much as in you got to have lots and lots and lots of water in there. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus says one thing and Rich Hall says a different thing. And then Gary Kroger says, actually, I thought he meant that we can't put too much water. Other people can do it. The other shift can do it, but we can't do it. And Julia... <laughs> pauses and says something like boy are you useless <laughs> it was a, it's a really good timing so they bring everyone else in they take a survey and while they're taking the survey the thing melts down and ed asner's on a beach somewhere retired and they see this nuclear cloud you know growing <laughs> and mary gross is serving him a drink and ed asner says well it's pretty amazing but just remember one thing you can't look too long at a radioactive cloud and Mary sort of looks puzzled as to what exactly he meant. It's total, it's a total writer's sketch. It's it's just completely based on language and interpretation and finding that kernel of humor inside. And I absolutely loved it. In that room are the controls for the water tanks. 
Now, just remember one thing. There's only one thing you have to worry about. You can't put too much water in a nuclear reactor. Take care. Anne, what are you doing? I was going to put some water in the reactor. What are you, out of your mind? Well, you heard, Ray. You can't put too much water in there. Gosh, it sounds like it uses a lot. No, no, no. Look, Ray said you can't put too much water in the reactor. In other words, don't put too much water in the reactor. No, 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 no. No, he meant that we shouldn't worry about putting too much. The danger is in not having enough. Yep, agreed. That was my number two. Ah, (laughs) I'm stealing all your stuff. All right, well. Well, what's your three? (laughs) That's going to make it quick. Well, my three is going to be quick because it's such a stupid sketch. It might be the dumbest sketch of the year. And... It's in the very last episode, episode 17. It is a, it's a talk show called Inside Out. And when you see it, you understand that joke retroactively. Because it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus hosting oh, yeah. a, a talk show. And Mary Gross is on her right. Pamela Stevenson is on her left. Mary Gross starts telling the story of her book, which is about... Um, the first homesteaders in America, you know, like in the Wild West or whatever. And everything that she says that surprises Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who is the host, JLD spits her coffee all over Mary Gross. (laughs) So she just, she does a spit take and just spews it all over her. And then Mary Gross, like... (laughs) thinks that's weird. And then she keeps talking <laughs> about, you know, there were also uh, in the American West, there were some women train robbers. <laughs> and she spits all over her again. Um, it is extremely stupid. And it made me sad that this is Julia Louis-Dreyfus's best sketch of her entire tenure there. And it was at the end of her last episode. Um, and it ends up with Pamela Stevenson on the other side, recognizing that she's about to get spit on. So she moves, <laughs> moves her chair over uh, and ends up getting it anyway. Um, but it's really stupid. And, uh, I, but I, it made me laugh like four or five times. And JLD now says like, it's running gay clubs now for some reason. Like a lot of gay people recognize her from that sketch. I have no idea. I mean, they probably recognize her from other stuff, but... Um, I don't know why that would be of interest in gay clubs, but nope, don't know. Uh, they, yeah, they seem to like her. So uh, that's it. Inside Out from episode 17. About your new book. <laughs> While you were out in Hollywood, did you pick up any juicy bits of gossip? No, not at all. <laughs> really? I'm nothing at all. You were out there for quite some time. You didn't hear anything? <sighs> nothing that might surprise anyone. Oh, come on, just one story or... Okay, fine. Um, put the coffee down. One. Just put it down. No, on the far side. Now, um, open your mouth. My mouth? Open your mouth. Okay. Well, when I first went out there in 1981, uh-huh. I was invited to spend the evening at the house of Anne Margaret. Anne Margaret! I can't stand it! 
you like that a bit more than I did. I mean, it's fun. <laughs> it's, it's a thin a premise, thin, but it's so yeah. stupid. <laughs> All right. A uh, sketch that aged poorly or could never be done now. And Christian, it's your turn. All right. Uh, it's every crystal blackface sketch, but I would say specifically the Jackie Rogers Jr. $100,000 jackpot celebrity wad. Because you also not only do you have uh-huh. Billy Crystal playing Sammy Davis Sammy. Jr. Yep. in full blackface, you also have Christopher Guest playing kind of an effeminate Indian who says things like "chocolate babies." I don't think I don't think that works uh, today. And then also the aforementioned what? the Negro League film. There's absolutely zero chance in the 2020s or from here on out that you have two white men playing Negro League players in a video. You're never going to see it again. So catch it now. Uh, That's it. I'll give you mine in one moment. What did you think about that jackpot wad sketch? Because that is another one that is referenced constantly. Well, you know, constantly in SNL circles. And I didn't see the attraction. Uh, You know, the, the part between guests and... And Crystal there, uh, the back and forth, so th- this password game is the best part. And that's funny. And the rest of it didn't do much for me. And I, I, I'm i not sure why it's so well remembered. It's interesting because you have Guest and Crystal as two, as Sammy Davis Jr. and this other Indian guy. But they're doing frankly, Frankie and Willie <laughs> in this sketch yeah. because they're, they're, they're playing the game of password and... Sammy Davis Jr. says, it's a, and then guest says, chocolate babies. <laughs> <laughs> so doing the whole, like, I'm, I'm saying what you're thinking before you, you actually say it. Yeah. So they're basically exporting it to this uh, fairly offensive uh, sketch. And I actually enjoyed it. The thing I enjoyed about that sketch the most was um, – Jim Belushi as Captain Kangaroo. Mm-hmm. Getting very upset that his partner would not help him out <laughs> with, with the right. correct answers. He's, it's clear that Bob Keeshan, Captain Kangaroo, is there because he needs a payday yes. because he hasn't worked in a while. And uh, so he's very angry that he's not going to win any money on the show and he gets he gets very upset. So I that was actually the, the best part of the part of the thing for me. I thought it was, it was a fine sketch. <laughs> This is an opera dinner kind of thing. Dessert, three layers, icing on top. Japuti. <laughs> no, babe, say you're in heaven, you're flying around, you got a little halo, you're... Dead. Yeah, but you did a lot of good stuff. You're... Blessed. Yeah, but you got the wings, the halo. You're going from cloud to cloud. I don't know. What is this? Next. Uh, this is... Uh... Chocolate babies? Right. <laughs> Good. All right, this is a long shaft kind of thing with a tip on the end. Next. All right, so my sketch that aged poorly or could never be done now is from the last episode of the season with Howard Cosell uh, telling us all about the run, throw, and catch like a girl Olympics. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, a filmed piece that I actually find pretty darn funny but there's no way you'd pull it off today you know it's the the visual of of throwing you know these men throwing like a girl i can't explain to you it's a it's a visual thing but uh you have them trying to throw and throw like a girl there's a there's a race in which uh, you know belushi and shorten they're running they're kind of running with their arms up like girls run 
And the winner of that race turns out to be disqualified because it's a real girl. It's not a man trying to run like a girl. A Belushi whines to get a better score. Oh, come on. Can't you get me a 10? I really want one. And they yeah. change the scores. Martin Short is standing by the car because he needs a sweater because he, he's too cold to compete. All these little <laughs> things that, yeah, it would not it would not be pulled off that way today. Okay, so I thought about that one, but... At the very end of the epi- of, of the sketch, oh, which I don't like, I, I don't J- want to think about that. <laughs> right, JLD and Mary Gross are flying an airplane and they bomb it. So clearly, somebody there at the time. I, I think a lot of the ones that we choose, where it's they don't recognize, you know, they don't they recognize yeah. that it's offensive. Yeah. I think they recognized that this was offensive, and so JLD and Mary Gross probably said, "We need to have something." that recognizes that we do not agree with this and would bomb such an event. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think they recognize that it was, that it was bad at the time. All right. Most prescient sketch. I'm glad I go first here because I love this choice. It is a, um, from episode 12, it's a commercial for time magazine and time had this series of commercials in the mid eighties with this very catchy jingle. So they, they, they parody the jingle but it's about how time is untrustworthy. It's a big media critique. Uh, right around this time, time had to retract this story and I think paid a big settlement for a story about the role of Ariel Sharon in a 1983 story about the 1982 killing of 700 Palestinian refugees. So no echoes of, of any sort of you know bigger stories happening today at all. But so they got they got this thing wrong. They had to pay out and retract the story. And it's, this Time Magazine rewritten jingle has, has uh, and there's a little voiceover than a jingle, but it's like, time probes below the surface to get at rumors, hearsay, and unsupported evidence you otherwise might miss. You can count on time for sub- substantially true, reasonably accurate reporting. And to me, such a huge echo, clearly, of the critique of mainstream media, you know, mass media, uh, you know, stories having to be I mean, heck, you, you've had multiple instances in the past two weeks of stories that have had to be retracted or largely changed, or uh, I don't want to get... You might know the stories I'm talking about. I'm not, we're not trying to drag politics into this sort of uh, show. It's not <laughs> meant to be that way. But but certainly there are, there are massive critiques of the way the media represents themselves in which something like this Time Magazine thing would be the least of their worries. Even back then, this idea that Time could not report the truth yet you'd accept it as the truth because they're the vaunted Time magazine. I think very prescient for some of the discussions around media today. Time probes below the surface of the news to get at the rumors, the hearsay, the unsupported evidence you might otherwise miss. Then, Time puts it all into simple, easy-to-understand language. Page after page of substantially true, reasonably accurate reporting of the week's events, supplemented by lots of big color pictures. Okay, I had trouble with this one. There wasn't a whole lot that I, I saw. I thought, well, you know, someday Super Bowl tickets actually will be $5 million. <laughs> 
the <laughs> I actually wrote there, that down. I think yeah. <laughs> there's there's a bit the night of a hundred stars. It's kind of a pre-recorded bit where Billy Crystal shows up as Fernando and he talks to stars like as Fernando. I thought, well, maybe this is like a Borat predecessor type of thing where he like, but they they knew who he was, so I guess that doesn't really work. So I'm so I'm gonna pick pick something that wasn't actually a sketch, but happened behind the scenes, which uh, I thought was pretty interesting. So Larry David, as I said, and Dick Ebersol did not get along at, at all. Uh, David thought Ebersol was tanking his career, wouldn't get anything on. So at some point, Larry David screams at Ebersol, like "You're effing! You don't know what you're doing!" and blah blah blah, and storms out. And then he's walking down the street in the cold. And he's like, what in the world did I just do? <laughs> I just cost myself $60,000 a year. So the next day, Larry David just shows up at work and pretends nothing happened. And nobody says a thing. And that episode becomes a Seinfeld episode where George Costanza makes a big scene about, about like, you know, quitting his job and walking out and then realizes it's a bad idea. So he shows shows up back at work and hopes like nobody notices that he left. So the fact that it happened to Larry David and it ended up becoming a big hit uh, Seinfeld episode, I thought was was fairly prescient. All right. Best musical guest of this season 10, Christian. Boy, there are not good musical guests. It's, this it's year. a brutal season. I know. I think this is the second or third consecutive show I've had to say this, but it's a brutal, brutal season for musical musical guests. I hate myself for saying this. I think it's the power station. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like some bad. like I think I I like some like it hot and uh they play of course the T-Rex hit get it on bang a gong. I think that's my favorite otherwise, you know, I like Herbie Hancock's Rocket. <laughs> that was a cool song at the time, but there's not a lot going on unless you like like Tina Turner which I don't I love Tina Turner. I don't like the songs that she played so uh that's my pick. Uh, the worst guest, I will tell you, is Billy Ocean. Billy Ocean was awful. <laughs> awful. The best guest is really the best song. I, I think uh, the Kinks, who were there for their Word of Mouth album, their performance of Do It Again, which is the single, the key single off that album, is just epically good. It's a tremendous performance. I don't even know the other song. doesn't matter. Just by the virtue of that one single performance of that one song, I'd say the Kinks are the best musical guest of the season. Uh, I think I picked the kinks in you an did. earlier season. You did. I didn't want to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So I didn't want to double up. All right. Best recurring character. Ooh, and it's me. And there are so many choices. I ran down all the choices earlier. And there's even more that weren't on that list. Like I, I didn't even mention Sammy Davis Jr., which certainly could have been a choice. Uh, it wouldn't be our choice, but it could be a choice for best recurring character of the season. And... I choose a character who appears three times this season, episode one, episode nine, and episode 11. It's a Martin Short character, and it's oh, Lawrence. Here we go. Lawrence Orbach. Lawrence <sighs> appears in the first uh, show of the season in the synchronized swimming where he can't swim. He appears in the episode nine sketch in which he is a soldier who doesn't know how to climb stairs. And you might say, that seems... Like a thin, how do you get funny out of that? Well, they did. It's a pretty darn good sketch. And then I think of the one I like the most in the Roy Schreider episode, 
He plays a police officer who can't <laughs> understand good cop, bad cop. At first, he thinks good cop, bad cop is Roy Schreider is the good cop, and he is a bad cop, meaning he's awful at his job. He doesn't know how to be a police officer. And they say, no, 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 it's good cop, bad cop. And the second time he mishears and think it's, thinks it's good cop, sad cop. <laughs> so, um, so Lawrence, this Martin Short character that he brings with him over from SCTV, and I told you this was going to be my nuclear hot take, and you're going to counter me in a moment. I just feel it. I feel it coming in the air tonight, as Phil Collins would say. I think that Lawrence, Lawrence, not, not Ed Grimley, is the key and best Martin Short character of oh. season 10. Lawrence is a superior character to Ed Grimley. Is this some kind of a joke? No, it just, it never came up before. What do you mean it never came up? You're 18 years old. Well, that's, that's a pretty good point there, Frankie. But you see, I was raised in the Midwest and everything's pretty flat. <laughs> and, 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 and I just, I was... My whole life I spent in a ranch house, so it was only one floor. You didn't have a porch? Well, we had a bit of an incline, but I mean, shh, shh, nothing like this. This, this is impossible. Lawrence, we're dying here, kid. Well, let's go. It's up to you. You can do it. Just concentrate. Get up the stairs. Right on, Sarge. Okay. Come on. Should be. Come on. Go. Come right on, foot, Lawrence. Foot. Lawrence, come on. Hell, I got a three-year-old daughter that can climb stairs. Get up the stairs! Oh my God, stop it. <laughs> you are wrong because the best recurring character is Ed Grimley. <laughs> I will admit my priors on this one. Uh, as an 11, 12-year-old, I slayed at school doing Ed Grimley. Uh, the fake triangle, the dancing, the quite decent, I must say. Uh, that was That was my... Uh, that was my personality at the time. It is Ed Grimley um, because as I watch him now, I, it just makes me kind of feel the same joy. And I laugh just as much as I did uh, as a child. He, he brought Ed Grimley over with him from SCTV. He uh, says that it's kind of, uh, it, it was in, influenced by Jerry Lewis. And it's just so silly. And to see someone get so excited about kind of like the little things in life. Like, you know, the phone rings. He's like, oh my God, it's the phone. <laughs> uh, I just think it's amazing. I still love Ed Grimley. I have a shirt to prove it. <laughs> uh, I am not, I said I would wear the shirt. I'm not wearing the shirt right now. You're not, wear, you're not wearing any shirt right now though. So it's, you know. Right, right. <laughs> uh, why we don't do a video cast. <laughs> To me, it's Ed Grimley. Will you please have a seat, Mr. Grimley? Yes, sir. This is a great honor for me to be here and to meet you, you know. This is a very decent office. So often high ceilings can be effective. <laughs> Why do you want to be a contestant on the Wheel of Fortune? Oh, because I just, I watch this show every day of my life, sir. I just, I think it's the best show on the air ever that has been. It's weird how good it is. It's so strange. <laughs> In fact, I brought some of my scores for the last five years that so I thought you would be interested in perusing, you know. March of 81 was particularly a good month for me. I seem to be on fire with knowledge. There are other... Uh, I mean, Nathan Thurman is, is better than Lawrence, I think, but 
I'm glad you picked a short character, at least. You know, so. Therm, I mean, very quickly, because we're, we're running a bit long, but Therm is fine when used correctly. There's a few times where he's stretched out into a full sketch. doesn't really work. Right. There's, he Not pops great. up somewhere else. I can't remember where. It might be a weekend update or a... Saturday Night News thing where it's not great, but the character works, right? Uh, but he's just not always placed in great situations. But I do think it's it's interesting that we all pick short characters and not crystal characters. <laughs> maybe not so interesting, or not, maybe not so surprising, I should say. Best celebrity impression, Christian? I had no idea that uh, Martin Short had this in his bag, but Short as Robin Williams? Oh, from, C- from episode two, the cold open. It's amazing. Like, it's dead on. Like, you would think that was uh, that was Robin Williams. And there's the extra meta factor that he does Robin Williams, who then does a Gilda Radner impression as Robin Williams and Martin Short and Gilda Radner, when they both moved to New York together, were actually dating. So... It's, it's like an inception type of thing. So it's Martin Short doing... Robin Williams doing Gilda Radner, his former girlfriend. It's it's kind of amazing. So that's my favorite one of the year. Robin, are you ready? Oh, like heaven ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now let's go. Sweater. Oh, sweater. Oh, like that is one bad fit, dear. I have seen bigger lumps in oatmeal. Put them together and make one good one, honey. <laughs> Next word. Oh, yeah. Like, 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 like Van Gogh. Oh, honey, the masterpiece has been finished. Although this thing doesn't seem to want to heal. <laughs> Next word. Uh, night. Oh, night. Like Saturday night. Like that series with Miss Gilda. What's all this stuff I keep hearing about fine the handicap? The oh, one wonderful. I chose, they did twice and then dropped it. I think deservedly so because there's not much you can do with it. But I think the impressions themselves for the very short time they needed them worked very well. And that is Kate and Ali, um, the, the <laughs> TV show Kate and Ali. And so this is Catherine Hepburn and Muhammad Ali. So Short and Crystal doing their two characters. And it only works in like 60 seconds because you can't write you can't write that out. But just having those two characters in, you know, in the same frame, in the same scene, doing Kate and Ali, both of them, I think, nailed very well. Best. Yeah episode of the season um i don't i think this is somewhat unusual i don't think there's one that sort of pulls away from the pack and that's been the case the past couple of years there's been one show that Mm -hmm. just sort of sort of is is you know by far hands down the best of the of the season i think you could pick a couple different ones here the one i ended up going with is uh, a little bit surprising to me but george carlin george carlin Hmm. episode five a really good host. He does a lot of really good things. He didn't do, if you recall, in season one, episode one, he did not appear in any sketches. Now he does this time, and he's good in a number of them. And this has um, the first Willie and Frankie, which is probably the best Willie and Frankie, uh, where they're night watchmen. Or is it the second? I can't remember now. Either way, I think it's I think it's the best one. There's a Joe Franklin here that's pretty good. Uh, George Carlin as colonial comedian, which probably could have been written a bit better, but concept is very solid. There's a good commercial in this one. This is the chess coach profile in sports. So top to bottom, it's a pretty good show. Uh, again, in a season where none of them really sort of stand out above the pack. I thought the Carlin episode was very well done. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, so my best episode, I had a couple written down here. I mean, it's kind of a cheat to say the Eddie Murphy uh, episode was really good because it's Eddie and he brings back correct you know, all his old characters. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's set that one to the side for a bit. Um, it also has the best Desmond Tutu trying to fix the Heisman Trophy. I'm never going to stop laughing about that. By the way, <laughs> I really liked the Christopher Reeve episode. I thought there was a lot of good Solid. stuff yep. uh, on that one. And then uh, episode one, right off the bat, like I said, you know, you got this film film bits, um, and there was no host that episode. So those are the those are the two that I would probably say were the best. Uh, worst episode, Pamela Sue Martin, probably not great. Uh, I think that one we rated that one the the, the lowest. That was I, I think that was in the uh, the valley where we had yeah, five straight episodes right. without a without a, a sketch better than a three rating. Um, so that wasn't great. I, Pamela Sue Martin, I guess, was on Dynasty? Yes. Or something? Yes, she was on Dynasty. Yeah. And I got one more, and it I shouldn't even say it just because it hurts my soul so much. If you don't, I will. Episode. Yeah, okay. I'll let you do it then. Oh, the Bob Euchre episode is really bad. It's really bad. It's the second episode mm-hmm. of the season, and I am shocked. I, I like Mr. Belvedere. I like Bob Euchre as a broadcaster. I like him as a pitchman from Miller Light. I don't know what the heck is happening here because not only is, I mean, the material's not great. Bob Euchre is really bad. Like, as an actor here, I don't understand because Mr. Belvedere debuted like a year later. And I don't know if he ended up taking nonstop acting classes or what, but he's fine on the show. He's very good on the show. On SNL, Bob Euchre is a Bad host surrounded by some pretty weak material, which leads us to have the worst show of the season. Yeah, so I'm a lifelong Bob Euchre fan, obviously. And if you go back and you look, there are YouTube videos of him on Johnny Carson where he tells stories. And it's just it's just a masterclass in deadpan where he tells a story, doesn't break, and it's, it's just it's amazing. And it just doesn't work here. I think they needed a little bit more from him, I, it, it kind of feels like he's trying to do kind of um, Bob Newhart. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's start this over. So it kind of feels like he's doing like a kind of a Bob Newhart type of thing. But uh, yeah, I think they need a little bit more from him. So this was not a good episode at all. Hosts who fit. I have two who both you would think might not be great host and ended up being very good host. Jesse Jackson very yes. good host. Very good host. And the other that was totally playful and willing to do what they needed uh, and pull off a very good episode, Howard Cosell in the final mm. episode of the season. I thought Howard Cosell was very good. Playing Ed Grimley's grandfather or dad. I can't remember which one. <laughs> yeah, but, uncle, something like that. Yeah, yeah but very good. Uh, Howard Cosell was, was totally in for whatever they needed him to do. Agreed completely. I also had Jesse Jackson as my number one. Uh, and then I had George Carlin because I... Yeah, yeah. Specifically because of that colonial comedian uh, bit, I think I liked it a little bit more than you did because he's he's basically he went and he wrote a whole set as if he was a comedian in yeah. you know yeah. colonial America, and I think I think that's hard to do, and I, he did it really well. He's a better actor than I think we give him credit for. So uh, George Carlin was actually really good. Hosts who flopped, Christian, Alex Harris. Not good. Uh, probably one of the worst worst hosts that we have have seen. 
He was he on Webster at this point? He was on like Webster he, at this point. Yes. Yes. This hurts my soul because if you read if you read uh uh the George Plimpton book about the Detroit Lions, he he talks about Alex Karras on the Lions, who was l- legitimately hilarious. Like he tells a lot of the stories about what Karras would do and things like that, and seemed like an actual super funny guy. But not on this not show. Have- not on this show. He was not. Uh, he was not game for this. So uh, I'm going to Alex Karras. I agree. I, I, I think I wrote low key one of the worst hosts. I don't know in history. We got a long way to go, but certainly low key one of the worst hosts of SNL up until this point uh, in its in its existence. He was he was very bad, <laughs> very bad. Last uh, last season we talked about when somebody hosts in character yeah. and. This year we had Hulk Hogan and Mr. T hosting together in character, basically. And I think we ran into the same problems where you can't write you can't write a sketch for Hulk Hogan or Mr. Well, T I mean, when that, they're not Hulk Hogan and Mr. T. That's just a that, uh, just a WWF propaganda show at this point. You had uh, right. you had Rowdy Roddy Piper out at the end doing a uh, you know cutting a promo on Hulk and Mr. T, and they responded. And they did another wrestling-related thing toward the end of the season. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I think a month after this season ended is the debut of Saturday Night's main event on NBC. Yeah. So Dick Ebersole is producer of both shows trying to cross-pollinate a bit, would be my guess. <laughs> rookie of uh, the year. Boy, rookie of the year. Well, I mean, I guess it would have to be short, right? Since I picked him as my MVP and he's this is his first year. So you know, short. it's it's not always. You know, I, I think you could have someone else. I I have someone else. You know, I my my MVP is Billy Crystal. It was his first year. I do not have him as rookie of the year. Uh, mm. Spreading the wealth around, I I choose Chris Gast for rookie of the year, mm. and it's hard to make the case that he was the most valuable. And now we're splitting hairs here. And and look, is this a way to sort of talk a bit about Chris Gast? Yeah, maybe it is. Um, he was far more, he was far more flexible in his performances than I thought he would be. And he helped anchor a few things, uh, not, uh, Saturday Night News, which he did, but I don't want to talk about, but like that Desmond Tutu sketch where he plays the host of that, of that talk show. There are places in the season where Chris Guest really is sort of has that role of being, you know, he wasn't crystal, he wasn't short. He could do his characters, but he could also be Episcopo type in which he was holding a few things together or setting up Crystal for his whatever he's doing. And I thought that of all of those characters or all of those guys, I guess here's how I'd say it. Of all those guys, if you were going to continue the show in this vein, he might have ended up the most valuable because with Crystal and Short, you've got your characters. I don't know how much longer you could keep up that pace of having these guys on every other show, whatever it might be. But guests could make some contributions in uh, different ways. And so um, it's a little bit here to recognize his contribution because he does get eclipsed a bit by Short and Crystal to an extent, but very important to the success of this season. One of my favorite uh, guest moments is what are the names of the two guys that are like Willie and Frankie, except they just uh, insult each other? Um, Those two guys. It's uh, Ricky and Phil. He goes over to Crystal's house and he brings like some porn with him and hands him. Like, oh, a, yeah. A porn yeah. That, is, 
that Crystal is supposed to say the name of the of the porn movie on the air, and you could just see the horror in his face, like he he surprised him at that point. Yes, and he would he would not say the name of it on on TV. <laughs> so good for Chris Christopher Guest. Felt like he was playing a trick on him at that point. Uh, best cold open of the season. That's oh, all it's right. Me. It's me. Oh, go ahead. Um, it's episode eight, Ringo Starr. So Ringo Starr is your guest host for episode eight, and they open with this auction setting in which Julie Louis-Dreyfus pays like $120,000 for a toothbrush that Paul McCartney once used. <laughs> and the next item up for bids is Ringo Starr. Actually, Ringo Starr. And no one will bid on Ringo Starr. Like, what, what good is he? What does he do? Uh, you know, what are his attributes? And there's no bids. And Martin Short plays the auctioneer. He's like, we're talking about an actual human being here. Uh, and, and no one will bid on Ringo Starr. And again, cold opens are one of the big Achilles heels of Ebersol era SNL. They really don't know how to do a quality cold open. This is the best of the season, though. Getting the, getting the host involved, you know, playing with his perceived lack of unpopularity, poking fun of the Beatle, uh, it all works pretty well. He was for nine years the drummer with the Beatles and performed with them on all their albums and tours. And as you can see, he's in very good condition. And I, for one, would like to open the bidding at $75,000. Now, do I hear 75? <laughs> Do I hear seventy-five thousand dollars for this drummer with the Beatles? Do I hear sixty-five thousand dollars for Ringo Starr, a member of the Beatles, talented musician, owner of a large ring collection? Yes, sir. Sixty-five thousand. Oh uh, no, uh, I was wondering about the jacket he's wearing. Yes. Was it by any chance ever worn by Paul? And it was so good they brought it back uh, later in the episode for for another another sketch, kind of referencing. Yes, they show they, they show the family that bought him, yeah. And, and and yeah, and how he's a t- they regret it, <laughs> they regret yeah. buying Ringo Starr, <laughs> and they bought him for like sixty four dollars. It was some absurdly low bid. Well, he wandered off and ended up in Milwaukee at some point, right? Yeah, then he came um, back. <laughs> uh, my best cold open is episode one lifestyles of the relatives of the rich and famous Martin short as Nelson Hepburn Catherine's maternal third cousin uh, where he's basically doing his, his uh, Catherine Hepburn impersonation and the low key funniest part of it is Harry Shearer as um, Robin Leach because they, <laughs> they show the interview with Nelson Hepburn with uh with short and then they just cut to it's reaction uh, shot Shearer, yeah. his reaction shot where he was just nodding and th- this must have been something that happened on uh lifestyles of the rich and famous where you could tell robin leach was nowhere near the person <laughs> that they were interviewing that he was probably like a thousand miles away somewhere uh-huh. and uh and just like nodding as if he was talking to him so uh i thought it was pretty funny so that's that's my pick. Business is good these days for Nelson, but all is now rosy between him and his famous relative. We don't communicate at all. Never did. I tried through letter, through phone call, anonymous sometimes, and she'd hang up. One time she stopped by here, and I said, Kate, don't you know me? 
and she just looked at me and she said, more mustard, please, and walked away. I take each Sunday, Sunday's mine. It always was. Uh, best, ca- best catchphrase of the season. A few options here. A lot of options. Uh, I'm going with Ed Grimley. It's quite decent, I must say. <laughs> because I said that a lot. Uh, that was also my choice, in fact. I know I, I said oh, that. Wow. But Lawrence didn't have a catchphrase. If Lawrence had a catchphrase, I'd probably choose it, you know, since he is the superior character. Um, but yeah, I, I must say. <laughs> uh, sketch, sketch that could be a movie. And this one's me. I was going between two here, and I think I'm going to go, especially with uh, with current trends on the big screen. There is a sketch in the Christopher Reeve episode in which Reeve plays Superman in a retirement home, a- aging superheroes and talking to, I think, Billy Crystal, if I recall correctly, uh, about his previous deeds and there's a kind of a neat explanation about, you know, he's Superman. Why would he get old or be in a retirement home? And uh, Superman's explanation is, oh, you know, uh, I was uh, poisoned by some acid rain. And after that, I felt my powers weakening. And I had a double hernia when I tried to lift this car. And I could potentially see some sort of, I, I, you know, I, I'm no writer. But, uh, you know, old age retirement home for superheroes with with all the Marvel people who, who have begun to age out of their, you know, functional lifespans of being superheroes and have to find ways to, to cope inside a retirement home. I could see that working. I could see that being an interesting angle. That's like uh, Mr. Incredible from the Incredibles. Yeah, you're right. You get, yeah. You and, yeah. Uh, so that movie has been made in, in some sense. <laughs> Why was there never a Minkman Brothers movie? I would have loved that. <laughs> The Mingman brothers like go through life uh, trying to trick people and Nathan Thurm tries to track them down. I don't know, but I could do with a lot more Mingman brothers. So there's, there should have been a movie on that. Best weekend update moment. Nathan Thurm. Every time <laughs> he's smoking a cigarette. I was on, I was actually on MSNBC once and <laughs> my friends were at home watching. And so I was, I was on like the Chris Hayes show and I got, I left the, the studio, got in my car and my phone was blown up and it was like my best friend from high school. And I was expecting him to say like, great job on the show. All he said was, was it hot in there? <laughs> I was obviously just sweating like Nathan Thurm. And so I, I put a, po- a picture of me and Nathan Thurm side by side, and it was it was pretty uh, it was pretty close. But yeah, I was not I was not, I was not smoking a cigarette in Nathan Thurm fashion. He used, to, uh, I think, in the sound clip we we heard before, he he put a, a wire in there to make the yes the yeah. cigarette uh, ash uh, stay on a cigarette, which is it, it's just it's so good. You're right, the sketch that they did was not very good um, trying to turn him into an actual sketch character, but in limited, uh, <laughs> in limited hits, uh, I think he's perfect. Like there's one where he, he goes on to defend. Uh, they, they took a, uh, what was it? Like a donkey and, and, or a goat. And they put a, they sewed a, a horn onto his head and he went on to defend the company that did that. Like, pretending it was a unicorn, mm-hmm. uh, one of the better ones. So uh, Nathan Thurm for me. Hello, Americans. It's Paul Harvey. 
<laughs> Rich, uh, I was going to say Rich Hill. He's a baseball player. Rich Hall does this Paul Harvey bit, and it's so much better than Joe Piscopo's from a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think it's on four times on Weekend Update on Saturday Night News. Excuse me, and I liked it a lot more than you did. And look, I fully cede the point that you really have to be a Harvey aficionado to understand how well Rich Hall gets his cadence, his mannerisms, his scripts, his you know his his voice modulation. I mean, Rich Hall really gets close and uh and it also plays well as as christopher guest tries to interrupt him and say you can't you can't sell your stuff on on nbc as he's plugging his his sponsors um but rich hall Pet does true value yes yeah rich hall does a really really good uh paul harvey and i actually look forward to seeing where he was going to take it each time did you know that three of the most influential politicians in american history never wanted to enter politics it's true three brothers the oldest who would one day become president of the united states but he never wanted the job he didn't need the money the entire family was supported by a foundation and you know speaking of support and foundation a sealy posturpedic mattress is the ideal support it's true now the middle brother also never dreamed of entering the white house how many times have you entered your house and seen it infested with roaches well you know there's roach proof does it work you bet it does roaches won't come back rich hall to be thankful that pamela stevenson was on the show so she oh, got don't uh, be so harsh on rich don't rich uh, i like rich rich was good in 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 his limited uh, appearances uh, during this this season uh best commercial of the year and it's me and i you know the way that you smile at uh at uh at the, the heisman trophy sketch rightfully so I do when I think about this commercial from the Carlin episode for Ted's Book of World Records. God, you did it again. All right, uh, go ahead. I guess we both have the same best commercial. So Ted's Book of World Records is so fun. Uh, it is just George Carlin, direct to camera. Uh, Harry Shearer does a voiceover. And it's one of the, you know, call to, call to order now, Ted's Book of World Records. And it's a book of records only about this random guy, Ted's life. Like fastest 100 yard dash, 22 seconds flat, longest bath, 31 minutes, most eggs eaten at one sitting, two, I'm not much for breakfast, greatest height attained, five foot ten, three quarter inches, most rattlesnakes ever milked, none, which is <laughs> <laughs> very good. And then you get stuff like, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, I can't remember the second part now. I meant to write it down. It's, it was like, um, the bonus book was pe like people Ted knows or something along those lines. <laughs> um, and Carlin's so good. Carlin is so good uh, being this rando Ted guy uh, s s telling us about telling us these random facts from his life that are all included in this book, Ted's Book <laughs> of World Records. Yes, now you can explore the entire range of human diversity from Ted's tallest boss to his youngest niece. Most rattlesnakes ever milked. None. World land speed record. Well, the cop claimed I was doing 80. Witness the bizarre, the inexplicable, the uncanny. I agree. This is my best commercial pick. It is almost prescient in some way because like people online seem to think that you yes. need to know every, yes. Yes. every fact about their life. Uh, 
my, you know, my Twitter, my X feed is like random facts about me. <laughs> like, who cares? <laughs> All right. That leaves us with only one thing to do, Christian. And oh that is update our ongoing ranking of seasons, which we update at the end of each episode to try to put them in proper context. Uh, spoiler alert, this is not the best season of all time. This is not a top five season of the first 10 seasons, in fact. My rankings, three, four, mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. two, eight. And then there's like a, then there's a big line because I think there's, there's a quality, quality line that runs right there. Three, four, one, two, eight. Then I was trying to struggle with where to put this. I think I'm still going to say season five, then 10, then seven, nine, and six. So I have season 10 as being the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Is that right? The, the seventh best season from these first 10 seasons. Sorry, that's where I got it. Wow. Okay. So, I've got <laughs> write these down. Three, four, two. Yeah, you always have two ahead of, of me. Yeah, so that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Three, four, two, eight, one. Okay, so that's the first five. Three, four, two, eight, one. Now, is this your social security number? Are you sure it's not? <laughs> and then. Oh boy. Seven and nine are kind of a wash. You don't like five at all. I remember no, you ranked five very no. low last okay. time. We'll go we'll go five, <laughs> nine. We'll go five, nine, ten, seven, six. There we go. There's ten of them. All right. I'm we, sure everybody's like sitting at home writing all this down, like to make sure I, I'm the same every well, time. I've done it this time. So next next episode, you're gonna get it right. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it written it's down. It's gonna be different every time. I can't. I got it written down right next to mine. We're gonna have it straight next time. So you've got you've got season 10 as being the eighth best season of the first 10 seasons. I have it as being the tenth, or I'm sorry, the seventh best season of the first 10 seasons of what was just a weird. It, it's it's odd. You don't generally, we don't generally have seasons that have a better reputation than they should at this point, at least. Maybe it's the first one that has a better reputation than it probably should. And again, I just it is because of the, as you said the characters, and it is because of of uh, the fact that those those tape sketches have a long long shelf life that people identify with this season and think it's better than it probably is so yeah the so the recurring characters you get a pop like right when they when they show up and then it's diminishing returns every time they show up it's just a little bit less a little bit less and so when you have a character that's on eight times maybe the first two are good but then you know the last six are just kind of they're expecting people to love it because they've seen it before um and so I think that's what we end up with. I should say there are three seasons of the top 10 that are incredibly close on our, on our number ratings. There's season seven and season nine are both 2.33. So dead even. And then season 10 is 2.34. So it's one one hundredth of a, <laughs> it's, 
It's basically, had Stephen Wright not been on one extra time, it would be below both of those. Because I love Stephen Wright, and I give him a five every time. So that's, that's, that's how the rankings work. All right, that's uh, the updated rankings. That's the season 10 episode of Wasn't That Special. Don't forget to check us out at wasn'tthatspecial.com. Join us, get access to all the material as we continue our walkthrough. Christian, very exciting next time. Lorne Michaels Uh, returns to Helm SNL in season 11. I'm already knee deep into season 11 and could have some thermonuclear level takes apparently as I floated (laughs) one by you earlier today. We'll have to see how things progress, but uh, in the second decade, I I don't want to say too much, but I think it could be a very interesting conversation about season 11 coming up in a couple of weeks when we return. Great. And that music means it's time to go. It's gone so quickly. What a great time we've had, Christian and I, hosting Wasn't That Special, 50 Years of SNL. Thanks to the cast, the crew, everyone involved. Great to do a live show. Nothing taped here. I mean, you're listening to a tape, but we did it live. And we'll be back to do it live again as we tackle Season 11. Join us. Remember, wasn'tthatspecial.com. Follow us on X at 50 Years of SNL. Christian, I'm Scott. This is Wasn't That Special, 50 Years of Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live.